0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Rock, 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 rock,
2: rock, 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 rock. and roll high school is an album and a movie. Vince Van Patten is crazy about PJ Souls, but she wants to live a rock and roll fantasy with her favorite group, the Ramones. The new principal tries to stop the music, but the kids rock and wreck the school. Rock and Roll High School, the school where the students rule. Your school could be next. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested.
3: Class is now in session. Welcome to the projection booth. I am Professor Mike White. Joining me is Dean Rob St. Mary. I love concerts, but who are the Ramones? Also joining us this week is FilmWax Radio's Adam Shartoff.
4: Hey guys, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, I'm calling all the way from Idaho, where it's raining cats and dogs.
3: Yes! This week we are looking at the 1979 film from director Alan Arkish, Rock and Roll High School. The film tells the tale of Riff Randall, a superfan of the Ramones, who has penned a new song for them to sing. It also tells the tale of Kate Rambeau, a nebbish teen looking for love at the screwball Vince Lombardi High. The pair run afoul of the school principal, Evelyn Togar, and all hell eventually breaks loose. Adam, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Rock and Roll High School and what did you think, sir?
4: The first time I saw Rock and Roll High School was in the mid '80s, and I was living in Boston. And um, I was quote unquote attending college, which for the most part consisted of me going to the Harvard Square Cinema and seeing movies there, which was their local repertory theater over there. They would pair lots of old movies together, and, and that's the first time I saw uh, Rock and Roll High School. So it had to be like somewhere around '84, '85, the latest and even though i hail from the same town as the ramones forest hills queens i was not a fan of theirs going into that movie the first time and uh just i really wasn't that familiar with them but have since of course become a you know an enormous fan
1: i think i saw this on video when i was working at uh, thomas video and it was just one of those Let's uh, watch all the films in this Roger Corman series. So uh, it was one of those, of course, that was produced by Corman, not directed, as we know. And uh, the whole Corman school, all those great folks that went through there, and some of which worked on this film and went on to uh, become uh, pretty well-known directors in their own right, such as Joe Dante. So uh, it was one of those films that I picked up. And also, I knew the Ramones. uh wasn't a huge fan, much more of a fan now than I was back then when I saw it.
3: I have no idea when I first saw this film. It always just seemed to be kind of there. Uh, Obviously, I wouldn't have seen it when I was nine years old. Or, no, I guess it would have been uh, seven years old when it first came out. Uh, Yeah, it took me a few years to catch up with it. And... I swear I remember seeing more promos on MTV than anything, like when MTV was first around, especially that bit of uh, Dick Miller saying you know, they're ugly, ugly, ugly people. And when it finally came time for me to track this thing down, I couldn't find it on VHS. I ended up having to order a bootleg of it, which came from a Japanese Laserdisc. At one point in time, it was easier to get a bootleg VHS Copy of a Japanese laser disc than it was to actually own this thing on VHS itself. And this was probably also when maybe the movie wasn't necessarily a sell-through title, when it was still a, a for rental only kind of thing. So it was probably a lot cheaper at the time, too. But now it is available. Beautiful Blu-ray Set and with all kinds of extras on here, multiple audio commentaries, it's really kind of given this lavish treatment. I am really glad that this movie has kind of come back into the limelight and um, definitely a fan of the Ramones now. Really wasn't that much into them when I was kind of going through those formative punk rock years. Again, they just seemed to always kind of be there, and then when they finally kind of broke into... My mainstream, it was much more of like, uh, oh, they're the guys that sing the Pet Cemetery song. So there was that time where I wasn't necessarily that familiar with the Ramones, but I'm glad that they uh, have this film to kind of kind of harken back to. It is uh, fantastic work. So let's talk a little bit more about the plot. I talked a little bit about it up front, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. It's kind of uh, kind of screwball.
4: You think? I think the reason why uh, the, both the Ramones as a band and in this movie have uh, stood up t- is just because there's such a sense of fun to, to both, and, and life and, and energy, and uh, they lack cynicism. I, I It's not something I identified back when I originally saw the film, but after watching uh, Rock and Roll High School probably a good half-dozen times in the last few months, uh, I've really come
1: around, I have to say. I think another reason for it is is that even if you can't place a you know half dozen names of these type of films from 20 years earlier from the 50s, it really does feel to me like the guys that made this definitely knew that they were referencing stuff that came out cheap, exploitation, um, you know, high school movies from the 50s, and just pulling it forward and putting their own spin on it. So there's this level of fun that comes with it. When you know that it's like, oh, well, of course, there's the jock and there's the geek and there's, you know, there's all these different levels of, you know, high school characters that we get in those films from the 50s and in the early 60s. That seems to be the heyday of that youth culture uh,
3: film. Well, we talked last week about Cruel Story of Youth and that whole idea of the high school film, and when you're in high school, just how your emotions are, you know, so keyed up and it just means so much. And you take a film like Rock and Roll High School and even compare it to something that came out a few years earlier, like Carrie. And it's like, again, everybody is just so you know, emotional and there's just so much stuff going on and the stakes are so high. Whereas in rock and roll high school, it's just, it's not treated that way at all. Like you could have played up this bizarre love triangle thing between Kate Rambeau, Riff Randall, and then the Vince Van Patten character just like, you know, he wants, uh, P- uh, he wants PJ Souls, he wants Riff Randall, and Kate Rambeau, Young wants him. And meanwhile, PJ Souls, she just wants Joey Ramone. And it's just, you know, it, it, you could have really had, like, you know, these tear-felt moments of melodrama and all this kind of stuff. And there's one point where it kind of you know, push comes to shove a little bit, and I think it's, like, kind of diffused within two lines of dialogue. it's like, okay, great. So we don't have that typical melodrama kind of stuff going on in this movie. It is fun. There's just this sense of fun. And it is very much like this whole idea of us versus them, the kids versus the principal, and even within the, the kids versus the principal, you still have confederates amongst the teachers and everything, so it's not... Even that much of the the stakes being so high, where it's the kids just butting up against all of the faculty, you just have the one bad guy, Evelyn Togar and her two minions, Hansel and Gretel, and that's it. You know, and otherwise there aren't a whole lot of bad people in this movie, and it's much more about just enjoying yourself.
4: Uh, and in fact, there's references at the very beginning in the first opening scenes about how there's been a line of. Uh, principals at the school, none can survive because they're all so conservative, and there's a sense of uh, of rebelliousness and and again, life in these students that can't be uh, suppressed, and um, and in that way, it kind of the movie also reminds me of a late, later film, uh, Footloose, in terms of the establishment trying to squelch that that sense of uh, of of life and 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 uh, youthfulness and, and music and dance and all that. Uh, there's a similarity, I thought, I caught.
3: I love that everybody loves the Ramones in this, too. No matter what strata of person you are in the high school, in rock and roll high school, Vince Lombardi High, you're into the Ramones. And even, you know, Mr. McGoober or what do, what do they call him? They, like, totally butcher uh, <laughs> Paul Bartel's Mr. McGree's name.
2: Well, will come pay you, Mr. Magoober, visit.
1: That's the thing I like about Bartell in here. And as you know from the show, a huge Paul Bartel fan, we've done two of his films on the show. We've done uh, Eating Raoul and also Death Race 2000. And I, I like his character in here because he kind of starts out as, well, you know, you kids really should listen to classical music. And he's got this whole thing about Beethoven's Fifth in the opening. And then you have that great set piece, which I love is the whole uh, rat experiment. Where like, look, this is what happens when you play the the music at the rat. It's it doing all this stuff and it's so ridiculous and you can't take it serious. That's what makes it funny is that he eventually comes around to become a fan of the music and stands up for the kids and goes, no, you know, this is just a continuum of art. This is not, you know, there's nothing bad or corrupting in this. It's not worse than anything else that's out there. It's just uh, another form of expression. So. And and I think it's funny when he shows up at the concert and he's like kind of like obviously not dressed appropriately, quote unquote, for the event. And the, the guy who's taking his ticket says, oh, Montavanti's down the block. And like a lot of people wouldn't get that. But I often go through record bins looking for stuff. And there's a lot of Montavanti records out there. And it's basically sort of like classical Muzak. You know, it's like all these like string albums. So I just thought that was kind of funny as a little joke, which obviously would have been big during that era. People would have known what that joke means.
3: I think that's actually Arkish taking the tickets at that point, isn't it?
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's his little director cameo.
3: Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. There's a lot of Montevani and there's a lot of best of bread. That always seemed to be the one I found at every used record store ever.
1: Especially at, like, the thrift stores, you know, you go to, like, the Salvation Army or something, you'll find, like, you know, stacks and stacks of Montevideo records that nobody wants. Speaking
4: of records, the, there's an ongoing reference or themes to uh, to records and record collections uh, 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 later in the film. There's actually record-burning scene, uh, of course, but uh, PJ Soul's character has uh, quite a collection that she reveres and uh, I believe actually... I was listening to the audio commentary, Alan Arkish's uh, audio commentary about it, and those were his records. That was the records you see in her bedroom and later on at the school being burned were from his collection, and um, they were quite classic albums. I mean, they were some of them were only 10, 5, 10, 20 years old at the most back then when the movie came out, but um, if, that, if that old, uh, but they were... There were really there was a real beyond fetish. There was a real passion and love for 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 rock music and records.
3: Yeah, I was so glad to see some of those that show up, especially that Sticky Fingers album in there. And it it still even all these years later, it still hurts a little when I see that big pile of burning records.
4: Oh yeah, and if you if you look if during that whole fantasy sequence, you know, where she's in her bedroom dreaming about Joey and the, and the other Ramones, uh, there you could see her records on the floor and there I think I caught one Talking Heads album in there, more songs about billions of food. I think that's what that album's called if I'm not mistaken.
1: The music in here is pretty incredible too. I mean, just beyond the Ramones. I'm writing down who has needle drops in this film, and if you tried to do this film today, it would like the soundtrack alone would be more than the budget of this thing. I mean, you have, you know, the Velvet Underground rock and roll. You have Nick Lowe in here. There's just so many, so many songs. And it's just kind of incredible that they were able to get all of that. Devo, Alice Cooper. And then when they start trashing uh, the school at the end, before obviously the Ramones play rock and roll high school to uh, end the film, you get uh, our boys here from uh, downriver. You know the MC5 with uh, high school, so it's just just an amazing, amazing uh, call to all of these various bands and 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 songs that they were able to use. And like I said, if you tried to do it today, it'd be more than the budget for this film.
4: And don't forget, you got smoking in the boys' room in
1: there too. Another Detroit act. Well, actually, Ann Arbor, Brownville Station.
3: Yeah, one of the things that always comes up in conversation about rock and roll high school is the other bands that might have been in the film. So we might as well just kind of address that. And we'll hear about that a little bit more with some of the interviews later on. But I can't picture the movie being the same without the Ramones. And the Ramones just add this level of strangeness to it. I mean, these four guys with these kind of bad haircuts who all dress the same, they're kind of ugly people, especially Joey. I mean, no offense to, to Ramon's no. fans or Joey Ramon, but the scene of him singing to PJ souls, her lighting up a joint, which is amazing. Her lighting up a joint and having this fantasy. I mean, people always bring up, Oh, well, you know, it might've been cheap trick, but then they got really popular and it's like, okay, I can see a young woman having a fantasy about that lead singer from cheap trick. Yeah, no problem. But to make it Joey Ramone just makes it so bizarre, and I love it. It just it it works so great, you know. It just runs counter to everything that you might think. And then you know Dee Dee in the shower and everything, and just he's always making these goofy fucking faces. And Johnny with that horrible haircut. I mean, just everything works so well, you know. That it just wouldn't have worked with any other band, I think. The other
1: angle that it works on, and this, once again, like I said, and this is not a fault or idea of the filmmaker, I don't believe, is the fact that the Ramones look meets that 1950s greaser look I was talking oh, yeah. about. It plays into that 1950s like Teenage Rebellion movie. So you've got them in jeans and leather jackets and T-shirts, which is how they used to dress on stage. That was their look. It, like I said, it just adds this extra level, which the guys in Cheap Trick at the time were a little bit more flashy. They would have been more late 70s than looking like late 50s.
4: Yeah. Just to uh, build on what, what, what Rob was talking about, uh, I did some reading up, and I, I know that the Ramones uh, definitely were very influenced by uh, the 50s musicians and bands that uh, they were really big fans of. Of like eddie cochran and buddy holly early beatles all that stuff elvis all that stuff so it definitely had a, an influence all around and i don't even think they consider themselves punks at, uh, or punk musicians i don't know if that term was even really used initially or if that was something that the rock critics ended up coming up with and they just took it on over time i'm not sure but they were definitely definitely influenced by 50s music Oh, you know, and another thing I wanted to also uh, add while I'm at it, uh, you know, you, met Mike, you mentioned the fact that that uh, you know these guys weren't always the best looking, especially Joey. He was kind of a uh, challenged, let's say his looks were a bit challenged. Uh, he he had you know this bad haircut, bad teeth, uh, no chin, bad eyesight, all this stuff. But you know in a way this this endeared him and the rest of the boys to us. We could identify with them. They were you know they looked like us. You know uh, I, I and also the fact that they were so new on the set, they were awkward, they were uncomfortable, clearly uh, nervous perhaps, and all these things made them so accessible and all the more sort of charming to to me anyway.
3: You're right, Rob. That whole 50s aesthetic they're definitely going for. And then even before you know, they were in this movie, they were making a lot of references, both through you know the songs that they would cover, but then also through some of the titles and the lyrics. They would make it references to some of these films that Roger Corman was making in the '50s, or you know prior to that, some of the other films. So it's it, it all kind of feeds itself, and I don't see like a cheap trick necessarily doing that. Or I I had heard once that. They were talking about Van Halen at a point and even Devo at a point. Now, a Devo movie, I could get behind. And again they it would have that really strange level, like especially Riff Randall, if she was just like, "You know, oh, and Mark, the way I love the way his glasses make him look and all this kind of stuff and so it, it that would have been surreal, but in a different way, and I think that that aesthetic that you guys were talking about that fifties aesthetic works because of this being this uh, juvenile delinquent film, though squarely set in the late 70s one of the things that i love the most about this movie is that custom van oh my god i mean that nothing says 70s to me like an amazing custom van and i know there are still people out there like these vanatics they call themselves who still do all this customization the special windows the putting in the water beds and the shag carpet, all this kind of stuff. They might've updated a little bit since then, but just, Oh, it was glorious seeing this kind of stuff
1: with the painting on the side. And of course you the stick. If the vans are rocking, don't come and knock.
3: when I was in high school, we were just really fascinated by this book. We would go in at lunchtime and, and into the library and pick up different books. And one of them was the do it yourself custom van book from 1977. So that was just filled with pictures of uh, van modifications, and they would give different names to some of the different parts. So, like, you know, there were these kind of like uh, parallelogram windows, and those would be called sharks. And then if you had multiples of those, they would be called progressive sharks. So it was just like, you know, we would always talk about the custom van book, and whenever we would see a custom van, it was just always kind of this, you know, hey, look it, check it out. And it was great because it it told you how to customize your van and what you would need and all this kind of stuff. And they would always put things in terms of how long it would take to do. And they would say a weekend, a long weekend, a long weekend as long as there's no game on.
4: If you're not participating in the weed, all these things can really slow you down, as
1: you know.
3: Like I said before, I love that drug use is kind of just there in this film and you know i was uh, very surprised when riff lit up but i was great with it nowadays she would be the one you know castigated for her evil drug use
1: not only that but there's the scene obviously with um clint howard's character where they're in the van and he's like you need a drink and the whole idea of underage drinking in film when we were growing up was always like you said, it, it showed that the character had these flaws and had to drink. It wasn't just in a background like, hey, you know, have a drink, take the edge off. You know, the, the, the characters in here are much older. You know, they're much um, or, or they're treated more like regular adults as opposed to teenagers in the way that sort of teenagers were treated in film, at least when I was growing up in the 90s.
3: Yeah, it's nice that we haven't had the Reagan era to really you know, criminalize any kind of adult behavior in kids.
4: I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Cameron Crowe was a fan of Rock and Roll High School because of the van and the similar types of references. I mean, for all I know, you may have borrowed a few if you remember Spicoli and coming out of the van and all the pot smoking and ordering a pizza in the classroom. All those things are very reminiscent of Rock and Roll High School uh, with Best times at Richmond High.
3: The vans, the attitudes, the free love, the uh, the great quotable lines. There were so many amazing lines in this film. You both kind of gave a couple of examples at the top of the show and just, it really never fails with some of these things. I mean, just, yes, some of them are complete groaners, but I really think that they know that it's not like they're trying to pass off some of this pure cheese as being, you know, high literature or anything.
1: Oh, it totally knows what it is. And it also knows what it is in terms of its characters. Like the characters are so well established that you don't even need to have them open their mouths. Like that was one of the things that I wrote down about uh, Mary Warnoff's character as the principal in that, you know, she has her hair back and she's dressed in drab clothes and very stern, you know, in terms of her uh, posture. So it's like the minute you see her, you know that this is, you know, this is a person who wants to be taken seriously and she's a school marm kind of character. And then the Paul Bartel character of the music teacher, he is much more like – Almost like a college professor. You know, he's got like the beard which Bartell always had, but you know, kind of the guy who wears the suit coat with the patches on the elbows and stuff like that. Yeah, like all the characters are so sort of well sketched out in terms of their look, in terms of their design, I guess is what you could say, that once they get together in the scene, you know sort of how they're going to play off each other.
3: Talk about another great character, Eagle Bauer, just the way that his. Costumes. I mean, he looks like a used car salesman and he acts like a used car salesman. That whole basically selling, you know, the Kate Rambeau experience to the Vince Van Patten character and just, uh, you know, the whole like, I want to get laid before I'm 30. Are you a virgin? Uh, Do do you mean
5: um,
6: technically? You've come to the right place. Eagle Bower Enterprises is a name that stands for quality. Wait, I'm going to get you a date with the most primo lady in this school, Kate Rambo.
2: Johnny, why don't you tell Tom how happy he'll be with Kate? Right you are, Mr. Bauer. Kate Rambo, age 17, attends Vince Lombardi High, where she majors in nuclear physics. This perky gal on the go's hobbies includes splitting protons
4: and checkers. Included in your Night to Remember is a match set of Travelways luggage. Whoa. That's Travelways luggage, the first name in travel for over five
2: years. And now back to you, Mr. E. Thank
3: you, Johnny. There she is, Tom. It doesn't get any better than that for me. And I love, you know, that he's this high schooler who's already starting to lose his hair. I mean, nobody's really playing of age at all in this film. Again, they just kind of don't care, and that's absolutely fine with me. You know, nobody looks like they're actually in high school, and I don't care. That's fine. You can be a 25-year-old high school student. Again, kind of harkens back to those 50s delinquent films where you had people that were 30 and 40 years old (laughs) playing high school students. It's like all right, I buy it, go with it.
1: But then again, let's move 10 years to the future to a film that I used to watch quite a bit and liked as a kid, and I know you're not a fan, is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. What, Matthew Broderick was almost 30 when he played Ferris Bueller? Like, that's almost like going back to that idea where, yes, we know you're not a teenager, but you have to play one. Like, you got to act like one. You can't act like an adult that happens to be in high school.
3: Of course, I was very happy to see Screamin' Steve in this film, played by the real Don Steele, who is, uh, yeah, one of our uh, kind of unofficial mascots here. That's right. It lands us again into
1: a series of films that we've done. I, I think it is a, it was an unconscious move on our part, but almost like an unofficial series at a look at the films starring real Don Steele. So, Death Race 2000. Eating Raul, Gremlins, this. Kiss Meets Phantom of the Park. You know, there's that. And then, uh, to be honest, I'd love to do uh, Grand Theft Auto at some point. So, <laughs> I guess maybe at some point we will act- actually run down all the films of the real Don Steele.
3: The only real Don Steele completist in in the podcasting world. That's right.
1: Yeah, we're, we're going to give that guy, you know, old school radio guy, his, uh, his due. Too bad he's dead and we can talk to him.
4: I I just just loved all these bits in Rock and Roll High School. Um, you know, like Eagle Bower's office is a great example. It's a it's in the it's a bathroom stall, but it's it's like this enormous office. So it's a nice little visual. Trick, you know, uh, or or bit, which is just one of many in the in the movie. It's almost as though they wrote the film story around a series of bits. You know, whether it's the paper airplane that you know goes across the entire school campus, right into Paul Bartel's classroom, and goes right into his ear, which is which is a great bit. To you know, the effects of rock and roll on on, on mice, which is another great bit. Um, you know, they're kind of corny, but it goes back to this sweetness and 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 sincerity in the movie, which I just really ended up really loving.
3: Of all the people that we managed to get for the show, and, and again, you'll hear some uh, interviews coming up in just a little bit here, we were unable to get Marky Ramone, uh, the only surviving member of the Ramones who uh, was in the film. And Marky had some great stories about the making of Rock and Roll High School in his recent autobiography, which was called... Punk Rock Blitzkrieg, My Life as a Ramon, which I listened to on audio and it was pretty great. Other than the occasional, the guy who narrated it didn't necessarily know some of the pronunciations of names that well. So every once in a while he would kind of butcher some stuff. But I'm sure I do the same thing sitting here on this podcast. I'm sure that there are a lot of foreign names that I butcher. But um, yeah, these were not necessarily that foreign of names. So anyway... Some of the stories that he had to tell about the film were just uh, amazing, especially, it's no secret that Didi Dee Dee Ramon, pretty hardcore drug user, and that fence that you see around Vince Lombardi High, at times you would see, in real life, there would be fans outside of the fence, and they would just start chucking stuff over the fence for Didi. Dee Dee. And it was just random pills and drugs, and he would go along and... Pick him up, put him in his pocket, and then later on he just start popping stuff, having no idea what it was. Uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit of an idea, like you know, I'm sure at some point in your drug use, you know, like a you know a yellow pill is going to be this, and a green will do that or whatever. But for the most part, he would just kind of take out a couple things. Put it in his mouth and off he would go and enjoy himself for the rest of the afternoon or evening or whatever it was. So, yeah, pretty pretty good stuff.
4: And this is Marky, who's still alive, who wrote the book?
3: Marky wrote this after the rest of them were gone so he actually talks about joey's funeral in there and he talks about johnny's passing and uh, i think dd Dee Dee went before either of those guys if memory serves but yeah he talks about joey's condition and all this kind of stuff and it is fascinating though too to hear about um, joey's other condition his ocd and just how that kind of affected the band and the the band dynamic was really kind of twisted but i'm sure it's the same way that you know, you get any four guys, throw them in a van and put them on a stressful tour schedule. Everybody's going to have their own kind of quirks. But it sounds like they were just kind of effed up, especially like Johnny and Joey wouldn't, didn't talk to each other for a lot of years. And they would use other people's intermediaries, even though it's like Johnny's in the front of the band and Joey's in the back and never the twain shall meet.
1: I know that they didn't get all that well. I, I know that there was a clash of personalities because you have someone like Dee Dee, who, as you were saying, was such a, a sort of a loose cannon in a way. I mean, just anyone who's willing to do that kind of stuff. And I know that uh, Johnny Ramone was one of the first that I can remember of a punker who was a conservative Republican. Like he was like, thought Ronald Reagan was great and all of this stuff. So, so that was kind of a shocker because to me, I always thought that that the punks were much more um, or at least the people who were labeled with that were much more, um, you know, liberal and, and uh, free spirited. But, but he was very, he was a very conservative guy. I think he used to go to church and all that stuff. So it's, it kind of runs counter to what you expect, you know, when you talk about uh, rock and roll, but um it was just kind of fascinating. And I like that uh, I had an opportunity at one point to talk to um, Danny Fields, who uh, Danny Fields, there's a documentary about him out recently. I can't remember the title of it, but about his time. And he was the guy who signed the MC5 and the Stooges to Electra and did a bunch of different things. And he was their manager for a while and probably during this period. And I remember Danny Fields telling me stories about how, yeah, like these guys didn't get along, but what brought them together was they were like the only four guys in that section of New York, that liked the Stooges. Like, they all liked the Stooges for some reason. I'm not talking about the Three Stooges, I'm talking about Iggy Pop. And they liked the Funhouse record and, and all of that stuff. And he said everybody hated that stuff, but these guys somehow liked it, and that brought them together somehow.
4: I think that documentary, the documentary is called Danny Says. Yeah, anybody, that's it. Anybody's looking for Were any of the Ramones? Were any of them brothers or related? I can't, I know that most of them were not, but were any of them related? No, none no, of them
1: not at all. And that's the thing that was also funny is I remember reading uh, the book, the Legs McNeil book, Please Kill Me. And there, there's a bunch of stuff, obviously, about the Ramones. And I think it was David Byrne who said that the Ramones were more, had more of an image and a stage management than anybody. In any other band at the time, because they created that whole look like we talked about, you know, the T-shirts and the black leather jackets and all taking, you know, Johnny Ramone and all that and and all having the same last name and sort of developing this whole kind of persona, this whole idea, which he's like the other bands at the time weren't doing that kind of thing. They, they didn't create this sort of like stage show, and idea to go kind of along with it.
3: Yeah, I think the closest you're going to get is kind of going back to Devo with their, you know, matching outfits and all this kind of stuff. And it's always hilarious to me, you know, uh, Adam, you had mentioned the whole idea of like people not calling themselves punk at the time. And it was such a diverse group of musicians. If you go back and just kind of, you know, take a cross section of, you know, a weekend at CBGB's or however long, you know, a month there, just so many diverse groups you know looking at somebody like you know Blondie versus the Talking Heads versus I don't know the the Dead Boys just so different in their approach to things and where they would go with their music and everything and it just it didn't feel like this, you know, unified movement, which is what I really like about, you know, punk rock new wave of the day is that everything was so different. Like even if you go through, you know, some of the the British bands like uh, you know, Susie and the Banshees versus uh Sex Pistols totally different approach to everything but yet they're still lumped in as you know being punk rock and again kind of you know go 10 years into the future and compare a public image limited to what suzy was still doing and again so different with what this was and it's amusing to me to realize that they were all under the same umbrella even though they were completely different well i think one thing they did share and that was A rejection of
1: corporate rock,
4: of a rejection of
1: slick rock, you know. The thing really was a backlash against the big bloated arena rock bands and the prog rock bands of the day. I mean, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and and all of that stuff. And then also, I mean, in in my research for the book that I've been doing, which does cover the Detroit punk scene, a lot of people also said, like, singer-songwriters were big in the early and mid-'70s. I mean, the Jim Crochies and... You know, Dan Fogelberg's and James Taylor and all that stuff. And they were just like, God, it's like that stuff is putting us to sleep. And then you had these bands that were playing, you know, a million notes a song that went on for 15 minutes. And it was like, no, it's like we don't want either of those. We want to strip everything back to its original idea. And then, like you were saying, this sort of anti corporate thing, but the idea of just do it yourself because no label is going to come and sign you. Just go do it yourself. Put out your own records, put out your own magazines, put out your own thing. And I think, if anything, that's really what they shared together in spirit was this rejection of what was in the popular culture and the willingness to do it themselves when no one else was willing to step up and give them the money to do it. They didn't wait for permission. They went and did
3: it themselves. So you mentioned the documentary about Danny Fields. Another documentary that we should bring up is we talked a few months ago with the filmmaker behind the – that guy, Dick Miller documentary. And I would really recommend folks go back and check that out because Dick Miller, obviously a Roger Corman staple, just like Mary Warren just like Paul Bartel. So he makes just a small appearance in here. You know, I think he comes back again in another movie we'll talk about as officer Paisley. He was always playing this Walter Paisley character. So definitely go back and, and check that out. And he does have, for me, one of the best lines of Rock and Roll High School.
1: And also, if you're a remote fan, I would say End of the Century is also a good documentary on them. So you should see that.
3: I actually was uh, flatmates with the guy who co-directed End of the Century when I was at Slam Dance years ago. Then I felt bad because I actually gave End of the Century not that good of a review. So I'm like, oh shit, I hope he never read my review. What are the chances he'll be listening to this? Oh, probably very, very slim. Sorry, Mike Grimmiglia. All right, we are going to take a break, and we're going to play a few words from our sponsors, followed by our interviews. This week we have a ton of interviews, and they're going to be cut together in kind of a rock and roll montage. You know, I know the kids like that. So in alphabetical order, you, and not necessarily the order of how these are going to be played, you're going to hear from director Alan Arkish, cinematographer Dean Cundey, co-writer Russ Dvanch, actor Clint Howard, writer joseph mcbride actress pj souls co-writer richard whitley actress mary warnov and actress day young
7: let me ask you a question are you getting enough i bet you'd love more right well adamneve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts first you'll get a sexy surprise for her Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire, just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today, select one item, and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com.
3: Dave Nelson, host of the Comedy Go-Go podcast, whose previous guests include... Hey, this is Carlos Alzraki, James Garcia from Reno 911.
1: Hey, this is Graham Ellen." Hey, this
8: is Kyle Kane, Hi, this is Jackie Cation.
9: This is TJ Miller.
1: Hey, this is
2: Nick Vatterot. So if you fancy yourself a comedy fan, or maybe even a comedy nerd, check out the podcast at www.comedya-go-go.com or on iTunes under Comedy A Go-Go. And remember...
1: Yeah, it's A-Go-Go, all right? It's not A-Went-Went, all right? It is current-current, all right? Listen. Listen to me on the podcast.
2: <laughs> I feel like this went ride. <laughs>
3: That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year.
1: Nice. That was too much.
2: Rock and Roll High School, the school where the students rule. The new principal hates the students, but the kids take over and rock the roof off the school. Take out the sounds of Palma Cotney and wings. Fleetwood Mac, Devo, Nick Lowe, Chuck Berry, Top Gun, Fence Fabric, Velvet Underground, Brownsville Station, MC5, Eno, Paley Brothers, Eddie and the Hot Rod, Alice Cooper, and starring The Ramones, Rock and Roll High School. Deep,
3: Screenwriter, Joseph McBride. I've been writing screenplays since
10: 1966, starting in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was self-taught. Back then, there weren't any books or classes that I could take. So I was teaching myself to write scripts. And so it took me 10 years to sell a script. And when I finally sold one, it was to Roger Corman. It was a script of kind of a satire of Dick Clark's American Bandstand. So we would have been ahead of Hairspray and and the film The Idol Maker if we had done this. And Dick Clark heard about it and, and put the thumbs down on the project, unfortunately. But then I got hired to do a couple more scripts for Roger, one of which was filmed Rock and Roll High School, and I was one of the writers on that film. And I was hired because of the Dick Clark project. They thought I was an expert on teenagers and rock and roll, which is kind of a joke because... I usually don't like those kind of films, but so I had a satirical approach to it. Alan Arkish and Joe Dante were heading the trailer department at New World. They were editors and they were editing other films, and they both wanted to be directors. And so they were lobbying Roger for a chance to direct. So they had glommed onto my script, Rock City, it was called, and it was going to be. Alan directing the story scenes and Joe directing the musical. No, I'm sorry, the other way around because Alan is is a big rock and roll aficionado. He was going to do the musical numbers of the Dick Clark American bandstand kind of stuff. And Joe, who's from Philadelphia uh, was going to do the story scenes with the kids and everything. It would have been a nice match of talents. And then uh, unfortunately the story editor gave the script to Dick Clark who made known his displeasure with it. So that killed that project. So then Joe and Alan were looking for things to do. And Alan, being a big fan of rock and roll, wanted to do something with uh, some rock group, you know, And but he had only vague notions.
3: Director
11: Alan Arkish. Death Race was a hit. To give you a little inside info on Death Race, the original script, and I think his name was Robert Tom. I think it came from a book in any case, that was a very satirical movie. And the version that Paul Bartel directed and previewed was really funny. And Roger didn't like that it was so funny. And he, re- he edited a lot of the good stuff out. It was kind of upsetting, I got to say. It was one of my first doses of reality in Hollywood. that he didn't see the same movie that we did. And actually, some of, a lot of Sylvester Stallone stuff got edited out of that movie. 'Cause Paul did a lot of improvising it. It was very funny. Roger wanted it more grim and, and more more violent. Paul had tongue in cheek on it. So it was a hit and so Roger had a poster made for he's gonna do a sequel right away, Death Sport. And uh it was a guy on a motorcycle and the poster was great, but so he wanted to have a script made and the process started of the script and I think every script was awful. Because I remember at a certain point it was offered to all of us. Even though we desperately wanted to make our first movie, none of us would touch this terrible script of Death Sport. They really didn't have enough. See, in Death Race, you knew what the race was about, you know, and the running people over and the, the government and all this stuff. In Death Sport, they didn't have any of these ideas. It was kind of a, a warmed-over Star Wars thing with the this group of people in the desert on motorcycles that were supposed to be like Jedi's. There was mutants. But it was cut. Kind of, all in all, the script was incomprehensible and I didn't want to direct it and Joe didn't want to direct it and Roger approached a bunch of other people and no one really wanted to direct it. And a film student through an agent friend of Roger's named Nick Lissifor came on and did a rewrite in two or three weeks and started to direct it. And Nick had not had any experience with the Quarman Company and Roger. He had come from out of SC. And one of the reasons that Joe and I had a successful time with Roger is that we understood what he wanted. Because we had worked there for over a course of five years. And that five years in that part of your life is like 10 years anywhere else. You know, it's like high school, you know. <laughs> experience of high school is so important to you. It really feels like you're in high school for 20 years. All our 20s, all we did was work for New World. And seven days a week, all day long, that's what we talked about and that's what we did. That gave us a real sense of how it worked and what his taste was and what he wanted. And that's why Hollywood Boulevard is so audaciously self-referential. We were kind of living it. It's all we knew, so we made a movie about it. You know, it's kind of absurd that your first movie would be about what you're doing. But that's what we did because we had to make something that Roger would be interested in putting in theaters that had exploitable elements for a trailer and advertising in a poster and looked like another New World picture. So we did a, a satire of a New World picture, What's a, whatever the movie equivalent is of a, of a Roman cleft. Death Sport was just a trial. I mean, I had to come in after the director's cut, and the director left. I just worked on it, tried to make sense of it, and went out and shot a whole bunch of footage and edited it together, and worked hard on it, because I, but it interrupted my goal, which was to make Rock and Roll High School. At that point, I had already worked on Grand Theft Auto, and I was in the process of developing so to speak well, the way Roger did it's not the way studios developed my high school movie that had started out uh, as girls gym and mutated slowly into being rock and roll high school so I was working on that and whatever other trailers were around when Deathsport was screened for Roger and I was there to see the director's cut and the director left and Roger just said "You, I'm going to push your movie aside you have to finish that sport. and You know, that was kind of a... If you want to make your high school movie, you got to fix this, you know. And while I was fixing that, I guess Saturday Night Fever and thank God it's Friday, started making money. So all those kinds of movies are making money. So he said, okay, well, now you can do it as a musical because I see that that's a possibility and that's what you wanted to do to begin with. So that's how it became that. Because the movies at the time... 78, were, were successful, had disco music in it. I mean, the uh, soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever, I think, sold 20 million copies. Thank God. It's Friday and so forth. So the cook, the, uh, he was letting us make this movie which she thought was being called Disco High.
10: And uh, Roger at that time was a Writers Guild signatory, and I was a Writers Guild member. And you had to pay people $8,000 for an original script. But if if they did a rewrite, you could get away with paying them only 4000 so what Roger would do was he would and in this case with Rock and Roll High School, he had Joe Dante and Alan Arkish sit around with a tape recorder for two days just talking a script into a tape recorder, just improvising this so-called script and then had a secretary type, type the thing and he gave them $200 and he claimed that was the first draft. It was only 60 pages long
11: and it really was a mouse that didn't have any story or anything. I, I dictated a script into a tape machine the a there with Joe Dante and I did that and then we gave that to Joe McBride who's now a respected film professor and has written books on John Ford and everything who worked for Roger at the time and he did the first couple two drafts or three drafts of that but what they said
10: was you know we have this movie that basically was a bunch of scenes of teenagers goofing around in a high school and it had something to do with rock and roll, and that was about it. And they said, we need a plot, a story. And if you can, this was a Friday afternoon, they said, if you can come up with a story by Monday, you can write the script. So I went home and thought about it. And uh, as writers do, we tend to have uh, files of stories and ideas that we'd like to film. And one of the things that had been kicking around in my mind was... uh, My father, Raymond McBride, who was a reporter in the Milwaukee Journal, in 1928, he was student body president at Superior Central High School in Wisconsin, and he led a strike of his school because the kids were rebelling against a strict administration. One of the things that had happened, they fired a woman teacher who they loved And so the kids all went out on strike, and this became a national news story. It apparently had never happened before in America. And they were on strike for a month, and the school caved in and rehired this teacher. And the kids were so nice in those days that they agreed to go to school in the summer to make up for the lost time. So I thought there was an interesting story there, but it seemed kind of tame for the late 1970s. But then... You know, so I thought this would give it more of a political dimension to have a strike going on about something serious, you know, and uh, it wouldn't be just kids goofing around; they'd be they'd be rebelling for a reason. Then there was a scene in the script in which, in the chemistry lab, the kids were making drugs, some kind of drug in a in a barrel, and they had a pet monkey in the school, and the monkey drank the drugs and became like King Kong and broke through the roof of the high school is a really stupid scene, but it gave me the idea of, oh, uh, we should have some kind of destruction of the school going on. And then I flashed on the fact that in 1970, I had covered with the Wisconsin State Journal where I was a reporter, the students, I was the riot reporter because I was the only young male reporter there. So every time the students had a riot, which happened all the time, I would be out in the streets reporting on it. And the anti-war movement was getting very violent at the time. And they blew up a building on campus, Sterling Hall, which was the headquarters of the Army Math Research Center, which was planning bombing missions for Vietnam. So the students were against it, but they blew it up, killed a graduate student, which was helped end the anti-war movement. It was very tragic and counterproductive. One of the things that turned a lot of more peaceful protesters against protest and it enabled Nixon to widen the war, so it was really a really terrible thing. But I thought, oh, okay, let's have the students blow up the high school at the end of the film. My point, which Alan Arkish, I don't think to this day has ever understood the ending of Rock and Roll High School, I wasn't celebrating let's go out and blow up your high school. I was doing it as a kind of a commentary on how legitimate protest gets out of control and spirals into violence. And they added a little bit that I didn't write at the end where the disc jockey says uh, to the camera, if you want this to happen at your school, just give old screaming Steve a call. I'm in the phone book under Screaming, which I, I was kind of appalled because I didn't think that was the point of the blowing up the school. I thought it was a kind of the commentary on things getting out of control. And I was also thinking of the French film Zero for Conduct, the Vigo film in which kids take over a boarding school and run rampant in the school so i combined all this stuff over the weekend and they thought this would be a good story for the film however alan arkish didn't want to have the kids blow up the school he said well it'll make the kids unsympathetic and uh, i had to figure out how to persuade him to do it my girlfriend at the time was a journalist And she had been on the set of a Jonathan Kaplan film for Orion Pictures. And Jonathan Kaplan was an alumnus of New World Pictures, Roger Corman's company. It was called Over the Edge. And it's a serious film about juvenile delinquents in a suburb. And at the end of the film, they burned down the local recreation center, which the parents have built for them in a sort of futile effort to try to appease their rebellion. And it's a sad, kind of tragic ending to the film, but it's just a small building they burned down. So I had this brainstorm. I thought everybody who works for New World Pictures hates the directors who've gone on to work for the big studios. So I said, you know, to, to Alan, uh, Jonathan Kaplan is just shooting this film called Over the Edge where they burn down a small building at the end of the film. What we need to do is top what Jonathan Kaplan Is doing. We got to blow up the high school and make it a big spectacular ending. And Alan got very excited. You know, he said, "Yeah, we got to do that." You know, we got to top Jonathan Kaplan. You know, I was using my psychology there to to win, and so I I won the argument. And now Alan says that he thought of this ending. He's been saying this for well, how many years now? Since Rock and Roll High School came out, 36 years. He started telling the press that he thought of blowing up his high school when he was a student at his high school in New York, and uh, that this is his lifelong fantasy. He wanted to do it on film, but he conveniently forgets that he didn't want to do it until I tricked him into doing it. I called him at the time when he first started saying that, and I said, every time you tell that lie, I'm going to give an interview and tell the press the true story, so I'm doing it again here.
11: He added, the high school being blown up in there, and a lot of rebellion. And I had had some of those ideas based on my own daydreams in high school, had the conscious thing in there. And so at one point, Chuck Griffith, who wrote Little Shop of Horrors, I things, he had done a draft, but nothing that, uh, in Chuck's draft ended up in the movie. So while I was doing Deathsport, I met two of the guys who were in Deathsport playing mutants. They were film students going back in time if you were a film student around the late 70s, you kind of started hearing about Corman. So we're talking a couple of years after I had been there, you know. So I guess they had seen Hollywood Boulevard at some point.
3: Screenwriters Richard Whitley and Russ Devonch. I can
12: tell you prior to this, no one wanted to see our 60 millimeter films. But when we walked in by good luck, Alan Arkish and Joe Dante happened to be there at the time. And we walked in, we asked for jobs, they said, no way,
9: we, yeah. we we're not hiring. And then I think we asked if Alan Arkish and Joe Dante were there, because mm-hmm. we had seen this movie that they made for only sixty grand called Hollywood Boulevard. And by luck would have it, they were there.
12: That's right. They just happened to make their own student films, you know, about four years prior to that. So they knew what was, what was going on with us. So, so they said, sure, we'll take a look at it. Yeah,
9: and we gushed over their movie, and they actually were surprised that we'd actually seen it. <laughs> they, sure, I mean, we were quoting lines and stuff. Would you look at our student films? Absolutely. And then, for some reason, the secretary, who was kind of curt to us, then said, hey, you guys want to earn 15 bucks as mutants in a movie called Death Sport. And so Russ and I showed up at Griffith Park the next day. At the famous cave where Roger had made so many science fiction movies, the cave from the Batmobile drove out of in the 60s television show. And Russ and I were Dave. mutants with ping pong balls cut in half over our eyes, wearing the rags from Western costume that the lepers wore in Tapion.
12: It was called Deathsport, and uh, it was a Roger Corman film, and that was our first start in the movies.
11: The day we went up there, they were waiting in the office for us, because the office supply of then, I think was in when we were in Hollywood. And they were... At the same time, people coming in to be cast to play mutants in Death Race. That's four, I'm sorry. So they came, they were sitting in a lobby, and this PA came up and says, Excuse me, are you here to be mutants? And they said, No, we're here actually to be writers, but we'd love to be mutants. That's the kind of guys they were. So they got a job as mutants. And while, and we saw the student film that we just talked to the briefing. and so then when I was reshooting Death Sport, they were playing music. Today.
9: We were there for like twelve hours with no food. We only got fifteen bucks. Russ and I even volunteered to do stunt work because we were bored. Uh, we were both killed by David Carradine twice. It was very exciting. That's right. <laughs> and and uh, with fake blood and everything. And then like a week or so later, we get a call from Alan Arkish and Joe Dante saying, "Come on in." So it was actually Alan and Mike Fennell. And they had seen our student films and were duly impressed. Russ's was very well done. Mine was just cornucopia of just gags and silliness. But Russ's, clearly, you had talent, Russ. I mean, yours was, like, really well
11: done. And so they gave us this script, remember Russ, called Girls' Gym? Yeah. basically, Mike Fennell, who produced Rock and Roll High School, and I gave him, like, 15 pages in the script and said, rewrite this by Monday. And then if it's good, we'll let you know. But they wrote a whole bunch of stuff really quickly. So they
9: gave us the script and they said, take any 20 or 30 pages and do a rewrite and make it funny. And that's your test.
11: And that's all the Eagle Power stuff. They wrote all that over a weekend or, or a week or whatever it was, a couple of days. And we liked it a lot. And we got some money to, because we needed a script, uh, of Roger and to have them write the script. So they wrote the last, probably two drafts of rock and roll high school. I know they did all the adjustments after the, uh, was clear it's not going to be called disco hog, you know, got rid of all the disco stuff. And then when we had the Ramones, they did a draft that reflected the Ramones. Stuff in
12: it so that 's what we did, and uh, I, I continued to work off and on for for Alan as a um, as a production assistant on his, his when he did reshoots. The film was really terrible sport, so they had to do a lot of reshoots, put a lot more explosions in it roger said so that 's what that 's what Alan did, and uh, during that time we would uh, we would write uh, the green pages he, he was really auditioning us you know to see whether or not we could handle the job
9: Ross and I just jammed it with every Three Stooges, Jerry Lewis, Buster Keaton influenced jokes without stealing, just jammed it with chock full of as many jokes as we could. They loved it. I remember they took us to a pizza place. They said, we're going to get you in the Writers Guild. We're going to hire you to rewrite it, and we want you guys to act
10: in the movie as well. There were a couple of writers who were brought in to kind of make the thing zanier, and they they rewrote parts of the script, and uh, so it became kind of a collaboration that Joe and Alan had worked on it, and then I did five drafts, and these other writers did a draft or two. and So it was a real kind of uh, potpourri of things. But Alan Arkish kind of deserves a lot of credit for keeping the tone consistent. He wanted something that was surreal black comedy, and he got it.
9: It was not funny.
10: It was... Just yeah. really not funny
9: and didn't really work. You know, we kind of infused it with fun and we connected with Alan who, you know, I remember when we got the job that that time, he took us to the corner of Vine and Selma, where the Hollywood, you know, the, the, the stars on the Walk of Fame there. And he pointed down to Preston Sturges's star. And he said, this should be our influence. We should try to make a movie as good as him. And I remember we were kind of like silent looking at this. For me, I remember that moment specifically because, oh, my God, this is my dream to be with someone who loves old movies as much as me. But I think Alan interpreted us as as our silence as being ignorant of who Preston Sturges was. And I think we both said, are you kidding? He said, so you do know who Preston Sturges is, right? Of course, Sullivan's Travel the conquering Hero. And he wrote Easy Living, oh, my God, and Christmas of July. And he said, great. And he took us for pizza and as we started to rewrite he said, I want you guys on the set and you know, want you to be involved. We connected on a film school level and the love of old movies and Frank Tashlin and everything and we just connected hundred percent and I, I think Alan, you know, we kinda bonded with Alan over that love of old movies and everything. And I think if we hadn't known who Preston Sergeus was, it would have we
10: would have started off maybe not as on such a, a, a strong footing. I have to say I'm not treated well by Alan Arkish, who likes to deny that I had as much creative input as I did because I really created the plot and the characters pretty much, and the film sticks pretty closely to my plot and characters, and these other guys did the dialogue. I mean, I write better dialogue than that film has. I mean, it's pretty silly dialogue, but the the characters and the plot wouldn't exist without me, and, and the political dimensions of the film are something I put into it. So Alan doesn't like to give credit to other people, so he likes to make people think it's all his brainchild. So I've, I've been sort of kept out of the loop of things like audio commentaries and documentaries and stuff like that. But, you know, uh, I know what I did, and, and my credit's on the screen, so I'm happy.
12: The story credit for the movie, uh, Rock and Roll High School, was shared by Alan and Joe Dante. We weren't there at the beginning to know what they were were doing, what they were discussing. But as the film progressed, it was clearly uh, Alan Arkish's baby. And he really was the driving force and the, and the vision behind the, behind the movie. Without him, there would be no Rock and Roll uh, High School. Certainly not what we see today it would have been some guy just doing girls' gym. So he's really the one who set everything in motion, who had a clear vision of what to do, and was actually very talented as at directing. I mean, he knew how to, especially for Roger Corman, how to move things along very quickly to get the shots he needed and then move on to the next uh, scene so he could shoot it uh, cheaply and get, get the thing done. He really... He really was the driving force behind the movie. There would be no Rock and Roll High School without him.
9: It was like his dream was to have the, the Yardbirds come to his high school and blow it up. It was absolutely Alan's dream, and so the story was his and Joe's, um, and I don't know how much of the script they had written. I, I We didn't get the feeling that they, they just had done the story, and so when we were working with Alan, it was clear that he had this amazing vision on what it should be, and Russ and I were fortunate that we were able to channel Alan's Energy and, and just just adhere to his vision.
12: Most directors, after the script is done, don't want to be bothered with the writers. They're just a nuisance on the set. Alan was completely the opposite. He wanted us on the set. He wanted ideas to keep keep coming uh, uh, as things are developed to uh, get more gags if we could. So it was we became very spoiled. We thought, oh, this is the way all movies are made. You know that the the writers are very respected. You know, and their input is is needed throughout the entire movie, exactly the opposite of our of the future that that, that was the store for us. I mean, no one, uh, once the uh, script is written, they, the last thing they want is to see the, the writer on the set.
9: First time writers ever being invited on the set, and Haley's
11: Comet. It's about as often. And we had a fake draft that we used, when we went around to the different schools, because so, you know, the school would get a location, they wanted to see the script. So we would give them a draft that didn't obviously have the school blowing up in it or any of that stuff in there.
9: And Alan was just the biggest mensch. He just treated us with respect, and just he just he you know we were inspired by him. And he, as Russ said, we were invited on the set at all times, and it was it was just terrific. It was we were completely spoiled after that. Why can't it always be like this? And while Russ and I were writing the script, I, I was a tour guide at Universal Studios. And Russ was working in the editing room at New World. We would get together at night in my kitchen across the street from Universal Studios and write the script. It was always the group. We didn't know what the group was going to be. So in the script, the original script is the group. And we would try to come up with some gags and bits, but it was just the group. And
12: Yeah, we couldn't really write very much
11: for the group
12: until we know who they were. We have to find the band
11: and... It was just me and Mike Fennell, so we were not exactly savvy in the music business, you know. we were two guys in our 20s who, you know, knew what we liked. You know, I had liked Cheap Trick and we had liked, um, we had talked with Todd Rundgren, and we were just doing the best we could.
9: There's been many articles since that Alan had been meeting with the record companies, and they pitched Devo and and, and all this kind of stuff. And I think he met with Todd Rundgren, who turned us down, and, and he also met uh, – did, didn't he meet with Cheap Trick? Because I think Cheap Trick was close to wanting to do it, right, Russ?
12: That's right. And The only reason they did it is because it, it would have cost them money to make the movie. They were making more money on the road and doing their albums than they would have made because Roger is so cheap. They wouldn't. He would. They wouldn't pay him very much. So, so the we're almost kind of got it by default. But we're glad they did because they added the punk attitude to the film that that needed. That uh, I think Cheap Trick would have been would have been good because they had a certain wackiness to it with the to to, to the bunny and the, the other guy uh, being kind of wacky
11: characters. And Roger had a lawyer in his legal department, Barbara Boyle, who's now one of the big deans of UCLA Film School. But Barbara Boyle, And one of the most important business affairs of women lawyers in the motion picture business had met Roger, and she was since head of business affairs. And she had hired someone named Paul Amman who had worked at Warner's Music. So Paul and Barbara were the people you could go to, and I went to them and pleaded my case to them first about not doing disco music, because I knew that wouldn't work. And then I went to Roger with their blessing. It went from Girls Gym,
9: which is just the perfect name if you're going to make
11: do a, a Roger
9: Corman movie in a movie. It would be called Girls Gym. It went to Disco High, which I think was Roger's idea to get on the bandwagon of disco. And the way Alan has told it, we weren't in the room, that he just he got up on the couch and started strumming the guitar and just, you know, saying, Roger, would you go to a discotheque? And he said, yes, I would. Would you go to a rock and roll club? No, I wouldn't. That's why it has to be rock and roll high school. We're making a movie about a place the parents
11: wouldn't go. We had a meeting and I explained all about the difference between disco music and the kind of rock that I wanted in the movie. And to his credit, Roger understood instantly the differences, you know. He may not have, thought about it because he wasn't listening to either of them, you know. But when explaining to him that, you know, disco is the music of people with money and your parents and, and people go going limos to nightclubs, that's not what you blow up a high school to. You want the music of rebellion. I explained to him, you know, the band that I felt had a rebellious spirit. We may, might, in that first discussion, mention punk rock, but uh, I, I certainly mentioned The Who you know, and destruction of instruments as a form of what a band does that leads to, you know, the kind of action that we needed if we're going to go off to high school. And I also went to a concert at Hollywood High School. The opening act was Nick Lowe, Willie DeVille was on it, and Elvis Costello. And I took a lot of pictures of the crowd because that's what I wanted the kids to look like, the kind of people I was seeing at concerts. And I showed those pictures to Roger. Paul Almond and I, Paul, called up Warner Brothers and, you, and had a meeting with their, one of their A&R people. And we just talked bands, you know, and what was coming out. And I was pretty well up on a lot of stuff. And among the bands that Warner's had at that time, it just signed Devo and it just signed Van Halen. That's when I saw the Devo tapes, the original videotapes of Devo that they had made. They'd done these little films and stuff. And, you know, they were great, but it wasn't, it was too far afield of what we wanted. And Van Halen was somebody we considered, but I think everyone kind of felt that wouldn't work. And whatever the reason we went off of that. And then the topic came up of a label within Warner Brothers called Sire Records, which was headed by Seymour Stein. And Sire was starting to sign bands. I'd signed two, yeah, you know, I'd done this for two or three years. And that was this sort of, avant-garde label within Warner Brothers. And I had had a lot of Sire, a bunch of Sire records, so that's when the name of the Ramones came up. The first place I ever heard of the Ramones was in the Village Voice. Village Voice is a, you know, a newspaper and that's where I got a lot of information about music in the 70s and the 80s. Robert Christgau's columns and the people who wrote for the Voice really kept me up-to-date on music while I lived in Los Angeles. And I remember a review that Chris Cow had written about the second Ramones album and how not only was it a great record, it ad- it was advocated, you know, and, goo, and it seemed to also think that DDT was something that we should be aware of in lobotomy. And it was funny. It was like he was saying, and they're against DDT. Fire had a lot of records, a bunch of new artists, and they also were very good and a licensing band and music. They had a catalog that for such a new label was deeper than most. And I guess the Warners had to deal with them and wanted to give them stuff to do. So, you know, the, the sound of the Ramones, the Ramones sounded like a good idea because I liked Rockets to Russia so much, certainly. And I had liked the first album a lot, but I loved Rockets to Russia. So a meeting was set up between myself and Mike Fennell and the manager of the Ramones at the time. Uh, Linda Stein, who was also, who was the wife, of the head of the record company, was also a manager the Revolts. And the manager of the at the time was a guy by the name of Danny Fields, who I knew of because he used to write for Hit Parader magazine, which I read. And he was kind of, if you knew the music business, he had been going to the film more regularly when I worked there, but more important than that, he had discovered Iggy and the Stooges in the MC5, or he had gotten them signed to Electoral Records. So that's kind of led to a meeting with them. And that's how they got in the movie. And that's how the relationship with Warner's happened. What I remember about the meeting with Linda and Danny was that it happened very quickly after my meeting with Paul Alman and Roger. Oh, no, actually, after my meeting at Warner Brothers with uh, Warner's people, I, th- I think that basically, though they were in town, we, in my memory, I walk, literally drove, we drove to the hotel the next day where they were staying. It may have been like that, you know, for a long time ago. So we went there and we told them the story of the movie. They didn't really want to read the script, but, you know, we just kind of told them what it was about in the conversation. And I do do remember that Linda was smoking a lot of pot while we were talking about it. And then Danny may have been also. And as we told the story, they kind of really got into it, you know. And then we said, and we got to the part where we said, at the end of the movie, because these are Ramones, we inserted in their name into the story as we told them, you know. They pull up at the concert, and they play a song for Riff, and Joey appears in the bedroom. Just kind of pitched it to them that way. You know, I, I mean, I, I knew the band's music really pretty well, so I knew Joey was the singer and so I could say, Joey sings in the, you know, you know, I didn't have a real concept yet of it It was how I was going to do it, but that's how it fitted in. And then I said, at the end, you know, the kids, uh, take over the school and the Ramones show up and, um play in the school while the kids are sort of running around taking over and then at the end of the movie the Ramones play the theme song while the kids blow up to high school and Linda and Danny just sat up and they go that's it we love it we're in we're gonna do this I put the boys into it <laughs> the image of the Ramones playing while the school blew up was the same image that you know Roger wanted and they responded immediately so I don't... They must have talked the band into it, you know.
3: Actor Clint Howard. Cheap Trick had been
6: offered the, the role in Rock and Roll High School, but they wanted too much. And, and the Ramones were willing to do it soup to nuts for like $20,000. That is appear in the movie, create the music, do the music do the performance, be on the album, you know, the whole thing. And Roger, you know, Roger always likes that. I mean, if, you know, I think Cheap Trick wanted a hundred grand. And at the time, of course, then In Color came out and Cheap Trick became a, you know, stadium band and the Ramones were always just cultish and punkish. As it turned out, it was great. You know, in the long run, it probably helped the cult status of the movie, and, uh, you know, get, having that influence in rock and roll high school, uh, probably in the long run, may have been better for it than having cheap trick.
9: When it became the Ramones, it was, I remember meeting them for the first time. It was kind of an amazing night. We were invited to Alan, Alan Arkish's house, and he was, Alan was there along with the producer, Mike fitnell who uh, also treated us so wonderfully, and, and the Ramones. And so, what are we going to do there, Mike? We're going to watch Hard Day's Night. And in Alan's personal 16-millimeter print, because he wanted to show the Ramones not to be afraid of lip-syncing, because it was before MTV. My memory is that the Ramones weren't sure about the the lip-syncing. Is that how you remembered it, Russ?
12: Yeah, they thought the Beatles were actually singing the song live on the set. They needed some convincing that, no, no, they recorded it before, and then they're just mouthing it along, you know.
9: My memory is that Alan is when we found out that Johnny was this huge Hollywood movie buff, huge, more than a buff, just loved movies, and so that's how we connected with them. That My memory is that Johnny owned like 300 movies on videotape then, and because I remember yeah. you and I talking with him about movies, and so that knowledge of movies helped, because Alan could reference a Gene Kelly movie or a Fred Astaire movie, they recorded it first, and then with Lipstick, and then I think that was a big part in getting them convinced uh, to feel more comfortable
11: about it. The Ramones had thought that Rocket to Russia was going to be a commercial album. I mean, now when you hear it, it obviously sounds so commercial, but then the Ramones were being painted with the brush of punk rock, and punk rock was not popular, and the Sex Pistols were sort of reviled. They were, I remember there was a big article about them when Road to Ruin came on and it was all about how they were a new wave. They weren't punk, and I think that probably irked Johnny to some degree. So that was kind of, they were trying to find something where they could have some exposure, because they were touring in a van, crisscrossing across the country, and basically just playing concerts and clubs for Ramon fans. And when we did Rock and Roll High School, they oh, they were on a, they did those gigs and they were playing opening act for Black Sabbath in places like Bakersfield and getting booed off the stage. You have to understand how radical those songs sounded. That the the monomania of what makes them so great was lost on everybody. They were popular in a couple of cities, and that was it. And the movie was being made for two or three hundred thousand dollars, so. Are actually, supposed to be 200,000. So the idea of using a band as obscure as the Ramones, and also that was off the beaten path, you know, and so outside of what kind of music was popular, even within the realm of the ages of punk rock. Remember, we're talking the biggest band in the country was Fleetwood Mac with rumors, you know, and Bob Seeger was big, you know. Bruce Friesting was big. I mean these are all wonderful bands, but the Ramones were on the fringe. And so using that for a movie that was barely gonna get made, that was as fringe all made sense because that's what we were doing. Plus it fitted the real theme of what I was doing, which was that when you're in high school, you need to find a group that are like yourself, that you kind of identify with, and whether it, you be a greaser or a surfer or whatever, or today a stoner or whatever it is, you seek out your friends, And you always think of yourself as outsiders, you know, and you have to find your place. And in the generations that I grew up in, one way that kids found identity was through music. Music was so central to our lives. It's not anymore, you know. Music hardly matters anymore on the, on the cultural scale of things. It certainly doesn't accent societal changes the way it did in the 60s. Riff Randall, here was this girl who was so middle class, and so she could have been a cheerleader the year before, but, you know, at 17 years old, your life changes so radically, she somehow had heard the Ramones, had heard this kind of music, and decided that she really likes this kind of music. And she used it as a point of identity for herself, and that's something I had witnessed since I was in high school, and certainly had witnessed in working with the film Maurice.
12: But it gave us a lot more to work with, humor-wise, because of the of the strangest of, of uh, riff being as you know, California Blonde falling for for uh, the Ramones Joey. and, and Jolie and all that. And that was and nice, I, that was nice to work off of.
9: After that that night of watching Hard Days Night with the the Ramones. My memory, Russ, is that you and I were so inspired that we, like, did a draft on our own writing bits for the band, and we gave it to Alan. Look at it to Alan, Alan goes, this is fantastic. They won't be able to say any of this dialogue. But then, after a while, we, uh, in one of the recent, uh, in the recent Blu-ray, uh, I think I was telling you, Mike, that uh, Russ and I and Alan met over at the Shout Factory when preparing for the Blu-ray. I, I saved everything. I guess I'm kind of a hoarder, so I had all these photos and and, and, and everything. And um, all uh, you know, I had all these photos and Russ did too. But what I had is I had all the original script pages of all the different drafts. And Russ and I had come up with all these bits for the Ramones, and one of our favorite bits was their backstage at the concert, and they go to open their closet, and it's nothing but leather jackets and jeans in clear plastic dry cleaner bags, which we thought was a pretty good joke, right? And they said, no, 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 we can't make fun of our image. But that's in the Shout Factory DVD. And as you probably know, so we're writing the script and Russ and I are having a great time. I was not in on any auditions. Russ was there for some auditions. I was not.
12: Yeah, I was there for when PJ did an audition and she dressed uh, with her own clothes like uh, like PJ. and she did. Uh, I was there. I saw a lot of actresses audition. She's far and away the best one. And she's one of the key key movies. I have four key reasons why I think the movie is, is still remembered today. One is Alan Arkish, The second is PJ Souls. I can't imagine anyone else in that in that part being as good as she was. Her youth and vitality, her her peppiness, her great looks—it uh, just uh, that is something that a kid in high school wanted to see, you know. And it just added so much to the movie. When we saw when we, you know we never had uh, an actor or actress ever say our dialogue before, and when we saw her deliver her lines, we were we were really taken with it because we said, yeah, that's exactly what we were thinking, you know. It turned that's out really right, well. She? So. She made us look
9: good. I remember right around the time of the casting, it was like, it was Halloween time of, of 78. And we all went and saw Halloween. And afterwards we said, that's girl.
11: We need to get her.
9: Because <laughs> she, she right. was like so amazing in Halloween. And, and of course, she was the one wearing the hat and carry. Alan and PJ are two of the hugest reasons. Absolutely. Actress
0: PJ Souls. I think. Uh, I was called in because I think Alan Arkish said he had seen me in Halloween. So this is the reason, you know, to do, like, you know, people would say, well, how did why, did, why were you starting out doing independent films or low budget? And, you know, when you're that age and you're just starting out, you do anything you can and especially, you know, I mean, I thought Halloween was a cool movie, even on the script, and when I met John Carpenter, I was like, oh, this guy's really cool, you know, I had already worked with Brian De Palma, and then I met John Carpenter, and I'm like, wow, and Deborah Hill, I adored her, I thought, wow, this, this is a like power couple here. Um, but you never think. Yeah, people always say, "Gosh, did you know?" When you first read the script, it was going to be long-lasting. No, no, you just go for who you think is going to be fun to work with. If you like the part, if you like the script, you never think, "Gosh, I hope this is going to be a, make a hundred million dollars." Because you're not a part of that. You know, you're getting, you know, you're just hoping that you're going to do good and somebody else is going to notice you, which Alan Arkish did, and I, they called me in, and I think they had a, a whole bunch of other people. And I remember I went on three auditions. And the third audition, Rosanna Arquette was in the waiting room chewing gum. And when I walked in, she's like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm up for my hopefully last audition. She says, well, I already got the parts. I don't know why you're here. And she's chewing gum. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I went in kind of disturbed. But <laughs> in any event, I read and then they brought in Roger Corman. And all he said after my reading was, make your hair a little bit more blonde. And you got the part. So when I walked out, I went, bye, Rosanna <laughs> So that's my memory of that, (laughs) thinking, all right, well, they told me I got the part, so I'm not going to believe Rosanna. But she got desperately seeking Susan, so it's okay. You know, that was her rock and roll movie. Usually at these auditions in the 70s, the girls were really nice and fun and friendly. We all wished each other luck when we went in. We all knew we were all different, so... Yeah, I mean, I saw all the girls from Carrie all the time, Amy Irving, Nancy Allen. We were always at the same auditions together for, you know, television, movies, Movies of the Week, uh, guest stars on TV shows like Simon and Simon. I mean, and we were all like, "Yay!" And the the best one was Tom Hanks' now wife, Rita Wilson. She was hilarious at every audition. She never got a role, but she was always funny. But she got the role, which was
8: opposite Tom Hanks.
3: Actress Day Young. I went to
8: college in Los outside of Los Angeles to Pomona College. It was just a wonderful private small Claremont Colleges. I went to Scripps in Pomona and uh, had a great experience there as a theater major. Then went on to London to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and then came back. And literally, I think within the first week, I was at a par- I was staying at my sister's house, I was at a party, I didn't even have an agent yet, and a casting director came up to me and she says, you know, you should go up on this movie, they're really looking for this one character. So I went in on it, I was the last character. I met with Alan and uh, Mike Finnell, the do- the producer, just the Friday before, and then we were filming.
3: Cinematographer Dean Cundy.
13: I had been working on various low-budget movies for a while. Actually the first couple of movies I ever worked on out of film school was for Roger Corman. Uh, I did makeup on um, a couple of films. What I really wanted to do out of film school which is shooting, cinematography. So I I did uh, several low-budget films and then one morning I got a phone call that uh, said that Roger was doing this movie, Rock and Roll High School, and uh, was I interested? Even though you know I had been sort of uh, moving up on different films, and I said, "Well, absolutely. Why not? It sounds intriguing." And uh, besides, it's Roger Corman who had sort of given me a start. I agreed. The director and all the, the various people had been sort of involved with the, the, the Corman group on various films, and you know they they all came out of that same sort of, uh, school. So I thought, sure, why not? The DP was Dean Cundy,
9: who had just done, didn't he do Halloween? And I was channel surfing the other night, and I saw the opening credits for Roller Boogie with Linda Blair, and, and he did that, too.
12: That's right, I remember that, yeah.
0: And
9: Dean was just, just a class act, completely.
12: And Dean
0: Cundy was the DP, and he was the DP on Halloween, so... That was kind of fun the first day when we showed up. You know, I was like, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm Riff Randall. What are you doing
8: here? She said, well, I'm filming you. And I go, oh, good. I'm in good hands then. And the writers were on the set all the time. And one of them, uh, Russ was like, became a character. He was the character in the um, locker. You know, gets shoved into the locker. He was the writer, one of the writers, and then there was Richard Whitley, who was the other one. And you know, they were all on the set, and it just was a very collaborative experience. It's great. Uh, one day, Alan said, "Let's let's do a scene where
12: you're you're being harassed in the hallway." So, uh, we, and it was in his in his place, in his home. So uh, the two uh, hall monitors and I just started riffing together and said, "Okay, yeah, let's do it that way." So that, that wasn't really written written down. We just kind of did it on the on the set, and I said, okay, that's good. Let's go on to the next scene. So right. that's kind of improvised. Absolutely.
9: And if you notice, inside Russ's locker, because he's dressed like Harold Lloyd in the movie The Freshman, inside is the words Harold Lamb lives. Harold Lamb is Harold Lloyd's character in the movie The Freshman. If you think of Russ as the freshman in the hallway where the hall monitors are uh, harassing him, Russ does a line that we wrote from our previous script, which was, I'm allergic to violence, I break out in blood. Some people would say it's an influence, but I'm going to say it, we stole that from Woody. Russ and I do the script, and we're, we're finished, and they're going to start shooting... I quit my job as a tour guide. They're going to make our movie. We got to be there. And Russ, you're going to be there on the set. The both of us. Alan wanted us to be there every day. But you should know, Mike, that maybe you know this already. The part of the freshman who gets shoved in the
12: locker—that's Russ. Uh, when we wrote it, we didn't know that we were writing anything for me. But the reason—the only reason I got the job was because they were running out of money. Uh, 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 Alan or Robert kept cutting the, the script budget. And it was a it was a a shoot that was a, a a union shoot for for the actors, and so they they said, look, we can't afford to buy any more actors. Uh, would you mind doing it for free? I said, sure. So that's how I got the part, not because of yeah, my wonderful uh, uh, talent.
9: Right. And I think Ross, your joke is since we started off being a mutant, and at New World Pictures, we worked our way up from mutant to screenwriter. That's like the normal trajectory, I think. In New World to go from mutant to screenwriter. That's right. So there we are on the set every day, and Russ is going to play that that part, which was just terrific. And that's, I think one of my favorite running gags is that y- you show up everywhere. And I think in the early drafts you were like even in more places. In one of the cut scenes, script in one of the script pages that's on the Blu-ray, is they uh, I think uh, D.D. or Johnny opens up his guitar case in the in the uh, backstage, and you're in it. Oh, Mr. Ramon, please. <laughs> But being on the set was just amazing. I just absolutely loved it. It was such an energy, and everyone, just the very first day of shooting was the uh, the scene up on Mulholland Drive where Eagle Bar is with Tom and Kate up there. And, oh, and you should know that when Alan offered Russ and myself the job and saying, we're going to pay you, we're going to get you in the writer's guild, and we want you to act in it, there was two parts in the original script named Eagle Bauer and Strump and they wanted us initially to play both of those parts and those were named after two characters this is Alan's influence from Ernst Lubitsch's Design for Living and we knew that which was another connection with Alan that we loved old movies and knew who Eagle Bauer, and Strump were and so as Russ and I did the rewrite only Eagle Bauer survived as Russ will uh, I think attest to this my memory, Russ, is that we wrote Eagle Bauer as Sergeant Bilko.
12: That's right. We were trying to make a Sergeant Bilko character out of, out of him.
9: Absolutely, because yeah. he's always got a scam going. And I think even in my kitchen, we would go, wow,
14: wow, 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 <laughs> <It's like,
9: laughs> which is what Phil Silvers would always say.
6: Well, that was a blast. I mean, you're really, I, listen, that was probably, I mean, working with Ron on Grand Theft Auto was fun. But, but Rock and Roll High School you know, uh, being on my own, uh, being in a, a movie that had a lot of music, being a comedy, There were I had peers with me, you know, Vince Van Patten and, and, and PJ and Day. And, and then there was this band, The Ramones, you know, that, that I didn't. I actually was not a Ramones devotee at the time.
0: I was not a Ramones fan, so when Alan Arkish, when I got the part and met with him and then he handed me a cassette, he said, go home, listen to this, you're their number one fan. I couldn't relate to it except I was impressed with the energy of it, and I thought, wow, that is amazing, and I thought if I was going to be their number one fan, I should have that same kind of energy because maybe that's how I connect to them, so that was very important for me and my performance. And I thought when I'm on screen, I want to look like I'm in fast motion and everybody else is at regular speed. So that was sort of a guiding principle. And I wanted to talk fast and I wanted to move fast. I wanted to just be really like a bright light in terms of my wardrobe. I bought all the clothes myself. It was very important to me, you know, the colors and just the sparkliness and the incredible energy that Riff Randall would have as opposed to Kate, who was like, you know, very intelligent, but really sort of a dim bulb when it came to her energy level. So I wanted to show the contrast, but it was really off of Johnny's guitar playing and the, the sound of the music of the Ramones that I got my inspiration. So I'm, I'm happy to know that you noticed it. And some people have told me that, but it was planned.
11: Riff Randall was based on several women who used to come to the Film Maurice as fans. And I used to talk to them and they were, they liked those people, real life people really, really liked the British bands like Rod Stewart and the faces. That's when Rod Stewart was really edgy. They liked these raucous British bands, the British blues bands. They did not like the hippie dippy bands or the hippie bands. And so, you know, they liked, they ended up hanging out with the New York dolls and people like that. And that's who Riff Randall was based on. And also to a certain degree, it's just an attitude and a sense of certainly in no way were they groupies. They were more interested in the music. They loved being around the musicians, but it wasn't It wasn't the same impulse as a groupie had. And there was a woman who was a journalist who I just, I used to talk to a lot of concerts. Her name is Lisa Robinson. She still writes. I don't think she knows that she was someone who in my mind was kind of like, she was serious about music, you know? And knew a lot about music, and Riff Randall certainly does. So Lisa Robinson's book I just read, I thought to myself, boy, someday I'd like to run into Lisa Robinson and tell her that our conversations, just hanging out, because she used to come to a lot of shows, because she was covering it for Paris newspapers. She was my age, she was 20, 21, led to some formulation of a character like Riff Randall. In any case, that's a Riff Randall is, and that's why the movie continues to this day, because Riff has a real friend in Kate, and Kate is someone who's going through changes in her life, which is everyone is in high school. And so th- I think it's great that the Ramones are in it, but if there had been no relationship between Kate and Riff, and if they hadn't gone through the various adventures and, and Riff trying to express herself and being... Pushed down by the school, the movie wouldn't have been continued to be as popular. They're just really good characters. One of the
12: notes that Roger wrote was they don't want, they didn't want to make Kate too pensive. In other words, they want her to be a downer. That was something we we, we did worry about. That we wanted her to be appealing and yet be like a, the studious kind and all that kind of stuff. So that, that, was a, that was a balancing act that we, that we had to figure out. Also, Day doesn't get as much attention as T.J. in the movie, but she plays a very important part and does a very good role with it, uh, a very good job with it. She was, she was extremely beautiful, and she did a good, a good job with what she was given. So we were very pleased by her performance as well.
9: That was all in Alan's uh, story, you know, because he envisioned Riff Randall. I mean, that was Alan's creation, you know, that she was going to quote you know, famous lines from lyrics and just be a rock and roll fanatic, you know, and uh, you know, he that was his envision, and so Russ and I just, you know, kind of followed that, you know, that uh, inspiration, and uh, but you're right, but we wrote him just, you know, it was, um, you know, we wrote him as this great team, but it was fun to write, uh, you know, Kate is kind of the academic, and that was fun, it was such a disparity, and uh, which is kind of what all comedy teams are, right? Kind of the opposite, sir. Right. So that was a gas, and they could not have been
3: better. Actress Mary Warnoff.
5: I was very familiar with the Velvet Underground, of course, and sort of through them, I heard about the Ramones. I knew they were a band, that's all. I really didn't know anything about them. What happened was I uh, actually was going to play it like Armis Brooks, and then I would probably get a series on TV, and people would love me, and I'd make a lot of money. That was my intention. But when I hit the set, and saw those screaming kids, when I uh, got into uh, the costume, which was outrageous, I turned into Miss Togar, that's all. It was completely, it was just like uh, playing Caliban. I was born to play that role. I loved it.
9: Talk about a live cartoon. My, my God, we had Miss Togar, I mean, you know, Mary Warnoff, who was just absolutely amazing everyone was such a top of their game As let me reiterate what russ said that being alan was the heart and soul of the movie but it's like just that energy just adrenaline times 900 pj souls just just drove it like a mo- locomotive she was just so amazing and then mary warnoff just uh, wonderful and then her cohort in crime paul Bartel, as mr mcgree or as is the uh Ramones called him Mr. McGloob so, How great uh, was Paul Bartell? And and the scene at the end when he's partying with them all night, you know, when they're gonna you know, in the high school, you know, is after the day after the concert and then all the parents are on the podium there and we cut to Paul uh, Paul Bartell, hung over. We wanted him to look like Jerry Lewis and the Nutty Professor after he had been Buddy Love the night before and he was hung over. And I remember telling that to Alan and he knew exactly what we meant. That first day of filming, Mike, was not only up on um, Mulholland Drive where Eagle Baller with the backdrop. I can't believe we wrote that, we, that there was a backdrop of the stars and stuff. You know, it's like that's insane, but they did it. And I um, there's like multi million dollar homes up there now on the same location. And from there. I remember it was the first day of shooting, and I said to Day, "Oh my God, so that's that's the costume. Oh, you're playing for Kate. Oh, that's perfect. It's so dorky." She goes, "Oh, I haven't gotten in the costume yet. Oh, I'm sorry." Then from there, we went to a house near in Griffith Park, near um, the um, the Greek Theater, and it was in a house where it was Day. It was PJ and Day's. It was their the PJ's bedroom where it was that scene, and also the scene with Vince and Clint uh, with the van. That was one long day.
12: Yeah, that was a real van. We did, they didn't mock up that van in order to make it look uh, like a 70s disco. That was an actual van that they found, they had all that stuff in there.
9: Russ and I, in the previous script, and also because our influences were the Three Stooges and everything, we said, let's try to put a spit take in every movie, right? So, you know, yeah. also probably scarred emotionally for life as a as a small young child watching the Danny Thomas show, if you see the, the spit take, it's like it's, Clint is bracing for the spit take because it was like... Yeah, yeah you, just, can, you can see him. <laughs> He's
12: closing he, his he, eyes and here it comes.
9: <laughs> here it comes. So if you watch it, it's probably the second or third take and he knows it's coming. <laughs> that Fitz is going to do the spit take in his face, you know. So that, that, that's, that's pretty funny. But the way Alan staged that scene... It was just tremendous that Marky's outside, TJ's in the shower, you know, the Dee Dee's in the shower. That Because I remember when we were watching Hard Day's Night, Alan, because the Ramones wrote that song for the movie, I Want You Around. And Alan, I remember in Hard Day's Night, w- w- Ross, what's the song when they're just fooling around on the stage if I fell in love? On the stage or outside? In the studio. They're in the studio. Uh, it's not, in, not in front of an audience. Anyways, because Alan said, do a song like that. And they came up with, I want you around, which is just terrific.
0: Let's just take the uh, fantasy scene. That was day one of shooting. Day one of shooting. So here, after taking the cassette home and listening to it and not understanding it and going, who are these guys? And then showing up in a bedroom, and the first scene is, you know, to have this spidery long guy (laughs) crawl on top of me like a praying mantis and spit in my mouth while he's singing (laughs) was like, okay. I remember rinsing my mouth out several times after that take.
9: The shoot was just terrific. I mean, it was just so much fun.
8: It was such an amazing experience.
6: It was a fun experience. Most of the time, I was the youngest guy on the set and there were no other youngsters, you know, once in a while, there'd be a little, there'd be a couple of juvenile actors, but generally speaking, I was in an adult world and rock and roll high school. I mean, even though there were a lot of adults around, I mean, especially, Hey, listen, it was rock and roll. You know, I turned 18. Um, it was a little bit like Disneyland, you know, sort of like for all those toxic Peter pans, you know, don't want to grow up. Well, you know, they all end up in rock and roll
5: there were a lot of people who had never been in a movie before and uh... we hardly paid them and, and they just did whatever we wanted because the Ramones were there so let's not include them then there were other people you know who had uh... acting uh... uh experience they were very very hollywood they were they understood hollywood I, on the other hand, uh, was not very Hollywood. I mean, this was... I did movies in New York, it's true, and I worked for Warhol, but that's entirely different, isn't it? I uh, was very used to making up my own dialogue, not following direction, and uh, creating a character that was totally not in the script. That's not very Hollywood.
8: Everyone got along, and everyone were really good sports. I don't remember any problems at all.
13: We both came from the same background of filmmaking, you know, working in low budgets. And, and he certainly came out of the Roger Corman school. We had this common background, this common interest in film. I think it was uh, a lot of fun. I remember everything we did was was always about the movie. Alan, Alan was always about the movie, not about ego or making himself look good or control or whatever. It was it was always, how do we make the movie uh, best? And, and I, you know, I think that's sort of a hallmark of a lot of the good directors, especially early in their careers, is that they are interested in how to make the project, the film, the best it can be. And Alan approached it from that standpoint. He realized that we were doing or trying to do something that was uh, different, at least for the time.
8: Everything always flows so smoothly on Roger Corman movies. But I I think this has become one of his favorite movies, Roger's. Yeah, I I love the Eagle Bower. That was really fun. That was fun stuff to do, going in the guy's bathroom and walking through there and then going into his, his office. That was really a lot of fun. I mean, it was a true innocence. So it was like me playing myself to a certain extent. It was so quick, the whole experience. I think we shot in 18 days. But, of course, Alan Arkish can just, you know, give you the specifics. But I think it was 18 days, and it was 12-hour days or more for the Roger Corman movie. So, you know, you just kind of worked around the clock. It just, there was no time for rehearsing. You just were into into the the shots and into the scenes and, and with very little takes.
0: One or two takes, and if you were lucky, maybe three. And I remember Alan always saying, "I don't know if you'll remember this either, but it was like if if we're not going to get it, then we got to just move on." And that terrified me. I was like, "What? I want every scene that's written in the script to be in the movie." <laughs> this ha- you know. So even like the phone booth scene, which was kind of the hardest to do because there were three of us, and I don't know if you remember exactly, but you know, we pull over to make a call to win the contest so we can go to the concert because our tickets were taken away by Miss Togar so we win the contest and there's this other guy that was just proposing to his wife and we pull him out and we're dancing on him stepping on his engagement ring and (laughs) it's a really crazy scene and we were losing the light and it had to be done quickly because I think they probably were filming on a street corner without a permit and blah 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 but in any event uh, one or two takes and like I said maybe three if you were lucky but And there were a lot of long hallway scenes, one take, you know, so a lot of that was to conserve the time. And and, and because it was a 21-day shooting schedule, and we literally could not go
8: over. But Alan knew exactly what he wanted, and so it was great.
13: Like a lot of the very technically challenging films that I've worked on, when everybody says, well, this is really interesting and different, uh, you meet the challenge head-on and you say well whatever it takes we'll find a way and as a matter of fact uh, that was part of the charm of it was trying to uh, meet these challenges and do musical numbers with you know very little time and resources and it was just uh, so much fun to do it that uh, you weren't daunted by it if you look at it music videos uh, you know really and and still are sort of this uh, musical, a whole sort of genre of music and film in its own, you know. Rock and Roll High School sort of foresaw that, predated it. You know, the uh, fact that the Ramones, we shot, I think we did two full concerts uh, at the um, place in Hollywood. It was new to us, certainly, and uh, I suspect it was... Uh, new to the audience because watching musicals for decades, but this was sort of a new take on that. Uh, it wasn't even the uh, the musicals of uh, the, the contemporary time, you know, the Beach Blanket and the Elvis, you know, and that kind of stuff. It was it was really sort of a, uh, a zany, younger look at it, I think.
8: Uh, The most intense day was at the Roxy when we did the scenes with the Ramones and all the punk rocker fans because they used, they decided, oh, well, let's put an ad out and use the extras so that they get to come to like a free concert and we have this free audience. And they were pretty crazy. They were insane. I think it was misrepresented a bit because they were expecting a concert and instead they would stop and reshoot, you know and then have to do the song again and just keep playing the same song until, you know, the, the the film got it cracked and all the actors came in. But TJ and I got pushed around a lot and it was it was a bit scary where the Ramones actually had to ask the audience members to back off a bit and, and to to you know to be a little gentle. It was it that was an eye opener because I, number one, did not know what punk rock music was. I didn't know who the Ramones were. It was all a shock for me. So my character, Kate Rambeau, is pretty much the innocent that, you know, is very true to what was going on for me as well. It was a really cool experience.
5: I mean, we shot in, in the theater shooting the Ramones. I mean, they must have stayed there for two days because they locked the doors and turned the clocks back,
11: and nobody really cared. So I started thinking, well, you know, the lyrics are so funny on this song. I thought it would be great to spell out the DDT, you know, those lyrics, you know, because it's just so absurd, you know, in lobotomy. So then that led to spelling out lobotomy big letters, you know, because remember, I like I said, I had done so many trailers and had used lettering so much on the screen and had titles wipe in and out. And since... It was all the optics were being done by Jack Raven anyway. I just applied the kind of thing that we were doing on trailers. When I spelled D-U-M-B, I thought, well, it'd be funny if they spelled it wrong, you know. Which actually in the making, towards the end of the movie, the Ramones actually got some T-shirts made because they made their own T-shirts. All the early Ramones T-shirts from the 70s were all personally made by them and by Arturo. That's how they really earned their money. And they had made a rock and roll high school T-shirt, but they have spelled school wrong. And I had one, and then it kind of wore out and fell apart. I wish I still had it.
6: We actually did the live stage show at the Roxy. We did all the backstage stuff at the Whiskey. And we did, the the, when, when the Ramones actually played, it was at the Roxy. And boy, oh boy, you want to talk about, you know, the difference between major league hitting and minor league hitting. You know, there's just the, when, when the, and the Ramones had it, the Ramones had it. And, uh, I was, uh, you know, very appreciative of that. And it was a fun experience.
9: In the concert scene, as you remember, there's a a, a pinhead on stage. Mike Finnell made sure that the money from the budget paid for that. They continued to use that in their act for years is what I heard. And also Russ, didn't you hear this, that Gabba Gabba Hay, was like a distorted version of Google Gobble, Google Gobble, One of Us, One that's of right. Us. That
12: was, that's right. That was, a, that was one of Johnny's influences because he was such a film buff. He worked that into one of the songs and it became one of their catchphrases. You know, um, uh, we were, I was surprised when I turned on MTV uh, shortly after Rock and Roll High School came out, and I saw a video for the Rock and Roll High School song, and it was completely different than anything in the movie. And I, to this day, I don't know why they made that short and didn't use stuff from the movie. I, I don't know, understand the how that got made.
9: And, and the principal's the guy in drag, and, you know, it just doesn't work. I don't know why
12: they would have had Alan
9: do it, because it, Alan did...
12: I, be I, I think Phil Spector must have had something to do with it. That, that's, we're working on... They were working on that, that sound, that album, around that time. So... But I just don't know why they didn't use stuff from the movie and try for most of the movie on MTV. doesn't make sense to me. Uh,
9: I do remember after the movie was filmed, but maybe you already know this, Mike, is that there was a. The Ramones held a concert, I think it was, at, was it at the Roxy on Sunset.
13: Or no, it was the Rainbow
9: Room. What, what was on Sunset, the Roxy the Rainbow Room? I can't remember. The, do you remember, Ross? The Roxy
12: the, and the. Yeah, there, it was the Whiskey, the Roxy, and the Rainbow. Uh, the Roxy
9: was on Santa Monica, and the rainbow was on... Anyways, I can't remember. It was one on Sunset, and uh, the Ramones did a concert. And I remember Moon Martin was a warm-up group. Russ, you came wearing a Beethoven T-shirt with a safety pin through Beethoven's nose. So the Ramones did this concert. I think I sent you a link, and we have the, the concert that, that's the audio of it. And oh, wow. Huh. Uh, And Joey says, hey, everybody, we just did a movie, and I want to be sedated. And then after the concert, which was amazing, it was like in a little small kind of space, I remember Joey grabbed my arm, and he says, I want you to meet somebody. And he takes me over, and there's Phil Spector sitting there in the dark wearing sunglasses. He goes, I want you to meet (laughs) Phil. And and, And I want you to meet Phil, and as I'm walking over, I see Phil Spector, and I go, Oh, my God, what am I going to say to this guy? Is it true you kept your wife hostage for 10 years? No, I probably shouldn't say that. Is it true you fired a gun at John Lennon's head? No, I probably shouldn't say that either. Hi, I'm a big fan. <laughs> like, you know, fortunately, he didn't shoot me. The weakest handshake I've ever felt, that's for sure.
13: Uh, <laughs> so I got to meet Phil Spector, Joey Ramone, and Grady Sutton. The Ramones concert. I think it was such a great fun different kind of music and and I've always been a lover of music. I played saxophone all through high school and college so I have a musical background. It was you know so much fun to do the concert and to look for camera angles and you know all all of that that uh, it, it, you know I I would have to say that the uh, the concerts that we did were Something that stands out in my mind, and and then uh, I guess the, the musical numbers, uh, you know, the musical number in the gym, which was so, you know, again stylized that it was uh, it was fun. I have always wanted to do another real musical, um, and I think Rock and Roll High School is as close as I came to uh, doing one of those. That was was also just a uh, I don't know zany comedy.
8: Another fun scene was the gym scene. That was really a lot of fun. And uh, it was close to the end of the shoot. And Alan just kind of, I think, out of exhaustion, just kind of... uh, At one point, I thought he had had like a mini heart attack or something like that. But I think it was just he collapsed out of exhaustion. And so he didn't even show up to set one day. And it was the big gym scene when, when we had to do all this dancing and everything like that. And Joe Dante came in and he directed that day. And it was a lot of fun. I don't really remember. They, we must have had a choreographer, but I, I, I don't remember. So, um, but it was, yeah, that was great. Why that last day, Joe Dante
0: uh, filled in for Alan because I think he really had a panic attack and they just rushed him to the hospital because he got to the set that day and realized he had that huge scene to shoot and he was just overwhelmed with, oh my God, am I going to get it done? You know, We can't shoot tomorrow, this is it. <laughs>
12: Joe did a terrific job stepping in when Alan got sick and directing The Cold. He had no idea what that scene was like with uh, PJ and the dancing to Rockwell High School in the gym. He, they came in, they had some, some vague ideas of the shots and they said, okay, let's go. We, this is Roger Corman, film. So we got to start shooting right now. And they did and and he and he just handled it perfectly it was, doesn't look at all like it's out of place like someone else was 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 rushed into the last minute it it seems like an integral part of the movie that was well worked out beforehand but it was it was shot on the fly so that credits to Joe he really did a terrific job stepping into that PJ was very concerned at the time because she was expect this was going to be her big scene and she was you know working out with with this uh, Alan and when Alan got sick she she thought she was devastated she thought this scene's going to be terrible now but Joe Really stepped in and did a terrific job
9: on it. Just don't look too close because that's a real high school gymnastics team. A little bit of difference in age between PJ and the two riffettes and the real <laughs> actually. That's right.
12: The kids, were 14, the kids were 14, she was 29. You know what? Once again, here, Russ and I in my kitchen
9: were writing what's the stupidest, corniest song? And we had just referenced this in that script we wrote in New York with our buddy Jeff Couchman Alley Cat. We thought that's just the dorkiest song. And they used it perfectly in the girls' gym class scene, which which was, you know, just perfect. The shooting was just a gas, just a lot of fun.
8: Probably the one of the hardest scenes was the little dance choreography scene in front of the Ramones between me and Vince. He picks me up, and that was kind of an embarrassing moment. He could barely pick me up. I was like going, come on, I'm not that heavy, but I think my... I, you know what? I think my blue pants might have split or something. I think because I had these really tight uh, blue pants on or something, and I was like, oh god.
12: Vince Van Patten, he was a very, he was a very a nice guy at the time when we were shooting. And d- during breaks in the movie, we would go in the in the back of the truck, uh, you know, either the prop truck or or the truck for for uh, the lighting and stuff like that, and we would play poker. And years later, he shows up, you know, doing this world of poker thing. And I go, yeah, that makes sense. You know, we knew at the time that he really liked that.
9: So, Russ, did you lose money to Vince Van Patten playing poker?
12: (laughs) Uh, I did. But, you know, uh, a year later, well, I have two two further Vince incidents. I went to see the Hollywood Christmas parade. And who's walking down the middle of the parade but uh, his father, Dick Van Patten, in, in a car and his sons behind him. And Vince was there with the tennis racket. He was also a tennis player, a professional tennis player. So I run out into the into the parade. And I started walking beside Vince. I go, Vince, how are you? And he goes, hey, how are you doing, you know? And so I had a flask with me. So we walked the entire parade drinking from this flask of whiskey. <laughs> so by the time we got to the end of the parade, he said, don't let my dad see that I'm drinking. You know, okay. So by the time we were something around, at the end of the parade, now, it was Boulevard, very cold, you know, but we uh, were warm inside by the liquor. So we had a good time. I met him another time. But I'm not going to say the story because it's not going to be. If it's going to be broadcast, I don't want to say the story. But I'll tell you. I'll tell you it later
8: privately if you want to hear it. My. I enjoyed working with him. He was very sweet. He and Clint and I was really the novice on the. You know, I just had the least experience, and I was the youngest and like the newcomer. And they all were great. We just all played our roles, and we had a good time. And. I really enjoyed working with him. I enjoyed working with Clint. I've stayed in touch with both PJ and Clint. I haven't talked to Clint in a while. Vince I saw once at one interview. And Mary Warnoff, uh, PJ and myself and Mary, we go to conventions all across the country when they request Rock and Roll High School. And we sign autographs and do interviews and stuff like that.
6: And uh, Vince, I, you know, listen, I got along great with Vince and I had known Vince, you know, growing up in the business. Uh, there was at one point in our lives, we were working on two separate television series, one stage apart. So we would see each other all the time, sort of, you know, in the alley of the studio and going to and fro, you know, um, studio school and, and this and that. And I had known Vince and and you know, he was just the right guy for that part. And I had never met I never met Day and I never met PJ, but they were. It was fun to have peers around. It was fun to have people you know that I could relate to.
8: So of course you're going to ask me what was my spirit? What did I think of the Ramones? Like everyone asks, and my experience of them was they were really harmless. I think they were very foreign creatures, very quiet to themselves, love to eat pizza like it's portrayed in the movie. I'm sure Alan told you that he had to take a lot of the dialogue away from them because they had a lot larger roles, speaking roles. And the only one who could really do any of the speaking was John Annie, which is like kind of throw lines here and there. Basically, they were just very quiet and to themselves and had a hard time with the dialogue. So it was all, their dialogue was all minimized. They really say to themselves but they were very nice, and I've you know I've gone and done a few benefits for Johnny's cause um, at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, raising money for you know prostate cancer and stuff. So it was interesting, and
0: uh, but I really liked them; they were genuinely cool guys Johnny was the one that I conversed with the most Joey was extremely shy I don't remember Marky saying much although I see him all the time now at conventions and we usually sit next to each other they put our tables together and we take a lot of pictures with the fans together so it's kind of ironic and then Dee Dee would just say some crazy thing to me that I had no idea what he was saying but for the most part I was really busy because it was pretty much in every scene and I was sort of occupied preoccupied with and I, I was really really, really wanting to make this, since it was a leading role, I wanted to make this also, you know, my last teenage role, because I was, by then, I was 28 years old, so I was like, okay, this has got to be it here. (laughs) Back then, you could get away with it. You know, for the most part, I kind of dragged them to the lunch line, because they'd call for lunch, and then they wouldn't want to break in in front of the extras, I go, no, no, you guys are in the next scene, you can eat, it's okay, you're, these are the extras, and they're like, well, it's okay, we'll just wait, or, you know, I don't know if we're going to like what they have there, and so it was, they were really endearing and really cute and would would never sit on the couch in the, in the dressing rooms or whatever, they'd always sit on the floor. I'd be like, guys, you're allowed to sit on the furniture, you're stars of this movie. I did invite them to my house for Thanksgiving, but they ended up where they didn't They didn't really eat Thanksgiving dinner turkey and mashed potatoes and stuff. So we did order pizza, so that is a true story. The pizza was a real thing, which is, I think, why it was in the movie. I mean, obviously, Alan had to draw from their real lives.
6: Well, I became friends with John. I mean, I I didn't see him all the time, but but we were very friendly. And it was, uh, you know, to really see guys that could do it. Was, was very impressive to me. Marky, the drummer at the time, and I never really got to know Joey. Joey was sort of an elusive, what, enigmatic figure.
13: They were early in their career, of course. For them, it was the same thing. It was like they just loved making music, doing rock and roll, and uh, I think they were kind of delighted the fact that they were an integral part of the movie. They were the sort of the focus of the plot, you might say. Actually, I found it was, it was quite easy. I mean, they, it was great fun, and uh, Joey was especially interesting. I think as a as a character, but as a musician,
9: Alan assigned Russ and I to help uh, the Ramones run lines with them, and we would go into the the trailer because there was only one Winnebago. I think uh, Dee Dee and marky were at least Dee Dee was kind of usually passed out. And there's a rumor, and I, maybe you've heard this, Russ, is that Dee, Dee went to the ER so many times during the shoot that he say, that he kept on wearing the hospital wristbands that you can see him in the movie. I don't know <laughs> if that's true.
12: I, I, I haven't heard that, no. But, you know, I have to say that the, the, certainly the most approachable of Ramon at the time was Johnny because he seemed uh, very interested in the movie because of his own uh, interest in the movies. He was around more than the other ones. He didn't retire as much as as Joey and the other ones. Joey was very shy.
6: Sweet, sweet guy, Joey.
12: And the said he was very sweet, but really Johnny was the one who was most uh, willing to talk to people and uh, just having a normal conversation with.
9: Although every once in a while you feel like he might be able to punch us out like any time.
12: He always had that look like at any moment he could clock you if he wanted to, but he never did. Absolutely, absolutely. First of all, the Ramones were so
5: cool. They did whatever we wanted them to. They were not snobby at all. And plus, the idea that a, a girl writes a song for the Ramones, and then she dreams about them, and then they come to her school or whatever, and then she dreams another dream where she she's in her, I think she's sleeping in bed, and they appear in her bedroom, and she goes in the shower, and there's Joey Ramone. I mean, that's such a great scene. It just had some really classic, great scenes.
12: Without the Ramones, I, I'm not sure that this, this movie is remembered at all. It's certainly not as finally as it is right now. They're, it really places the movie at a certain uh, a time. There's no other movie like it with the Ramones. Uh, they did other you know, appearances and stuff, but this is the only thing that they have in in a commercial movie that they made so it's the only thing that that's available and their stature has just grown tremendously ever since the 80s i mean it just keeps going you hear their music commercials all the time now so it's it's i think one of the reasons for that is because of the popularity of of the ramones and showing them showing audiences that they could be more than just these well that punk could be their image is so iconic that it's just part of america Without the Ramones, let's say it was Cheap Trick, I think, I'm not sure the movie would be remembered like it is today. The Ramones bring so much to it.
9: Although the movie might have been more popular in its initial release because of the Cheap Trick Live at Budokan album. But I think it has a longer, it doesn't date as with the Ramones. They're kind of timeless, as you said, Russ. But wait a second,
12: that's only three. I have to say it, I think the the fourth reason why the the movie is still remembered is because of our screenplay. We saw the screenplay they had before, and believe me, it was not memorable. We did the job that Alan wanted to do. He had a vision about social commentary about the movie, and... That was not what we were hired for, because he already had that down. What he was hired, what we were hired for, is, is to create a carnival storyline and put gags and, and fun. And that's what we did. And I think that's one of the reasons why it got so much play in uh, cult movie uh, playing midnight shows. At that time, there were three or four midnight shows that played everywhere. The Plink Flamingos, Head, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Rock and Roll High School. It played Every big city that had a that had a, a revival theater played to midnight. Every city. I think one of the reasons for that is because the screenplay had something to say about something that everyone really hated, which was high school life. <laughs> and so they like to see it, the kids taking over the school. And we did it in such a it's it's it, 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 it's a strange. Not, if you just told someone, well, it's about these kids to take over a school and blow it up, it's not well. That's not funny. But we were able to make it funny, so I think that was a that was a a, a good effort on our part. I think people remember the screenplay uh, as being a funny, uh, the movie as being a, a funny movie, and that's because of with a nice script.
9: I would agree, but also Alan let us make it like a live action cartoon because we would reference Frank Taschler and the Three Stooges and stuff, and so we kind of made it a living cartoon, and Alan was fine with that, and we kind of bonded with Alan on that sensibility. He kind of let us
12: go crazy, and every once in a while he would pull us back, but as I said, working with Alan was an absolute dream. You can see all the influences in the movie that we had in our lives, the Three Stooges, even Bob Hope, uh, Jerry Lewis, Tashlin, Woody Allen, yeah. So it really was It reflected who, what we were doing at the time. And Alan let us do that. No one else uh, ever did it since. (laughs) Alan really let us have our head and do what we wanted to do.
9: A couple really cool things happened, um, Mike, is that um, the part that Grady Sutton eventually played, we were trying to think of people to do, uh, to play it. And Russ and I suggested Joe Besser. Remember of the Three Stooges? Not so hard,
12: right? Okay, so my memory is that, Russ, you and I, Called the Besser household. That's right. He happened to live only a few blocks from where we lived in North Hollywood. So right. we called up and uh, his wife answered the phone as I recall, And we said, uh, is this uh, Joe Besser's house? He goes, yes. Joe Besser, the Three Stooges? She says, yes. Oh, can we t- can we talk to Joe? He goes, well, Joe's next door to barbecue. So he's not really there right
9: now. Joe decided not to accept it because wouldn't he lose part of his pension or his health insurance or something? And so Alan and Mike... Tracked down Grady Sutton, and it's like, oh my god! And so he here he is. It's like Grady Sutton, and I remember Russ and I said, oh my god, you were we loved you in the bank, Dick. And I think it was a long pause. I was in the bank, Dick, right? And um. <laughs> in a signature of his that says to Richard don't buy beefsteak mines which of course is what him and W.C. Fields concocted the the scheme on in the bank deck I've had people say I don't know if I'm more impressed than you bet the Ramones or Grady's <laughs> but he's terrific in that short scene
12: yeah he was great yeah
9: he knew how to do a take and I remember Russ's and my joke Mike was that when Grady he was pretty old then when Grady Sutton passes away I hope that his obituary is something like Grady Sutton was in My Man Godfrey, The Bank Dick, My Fair Lady, and Rock and Roll High School. And it wasn't <laughs> far from that, actually. <laughs> Not that Rock and Roll High School deserves it, those other three, but, um, but anyway, that was a thrill for us, a thrill and a half. And to think, I'm sure Alan told you that it was like 280 grand which was, I think it was originally three hundred grand, but then they took twenty grand out of the budget, and I think a lot of that was taken out of the uh, the catering. And the joke on the set was, if you don't eat it today, it's a quiche tomorrow, because they would just put all the leftovers into a pie pan and make it.
5: The food was terrible. There wasn't any. The set was always trashed. The, I mean, we practically blew up the high school. The hours were horrible. No, I love the shoot. Are you kidding? I was, uh, you know... Uh, I don't know if you should say this, but everybody was high. So was I. I had a great time. Who wanted to go to sleep?
12: Uh, the uh, screening was one of the best screenings I ever went to when they had the cast and crew screening. Uh, you know, really there there's usually good vibes in screening like that, but this one was off off the charts. I mean, everyone really, really enjoyed the film, and they were very pleased with the way it turned out.
9: And Alan made sure that there was 1950s health educational hygiene movies that showed beforehand, which set the tone perfectly. But I do remember an earlier screening of Rock and Roll High School, which was like a rough cut, and it was like two and a half hours long. It was Everything of our script, just everything, it was way over two hours long. And I remember John Landis was there, and, you know, uh, Soliciting advice Vice, who I became friends with, John, a very nice guy. But I remember after the screening, Alan asked Russ and I, what do you think? And I said, perfect, don't change a thing. It well, we should be two and a half hours long, why not? It's, it was everything.
12: I remember that. And uh, I, I, it's too bad we lost the shower scene. Now, why did why did we lose the shower scene? Was it right. too day or what, what was going on there? Here's, here's what it was, Mike. So you have to remember Eagle Bar. This is kind of a
9: dated joke, but he, you know, he had the, the, um, the coupon books. He would sell coupon books to, to students, you know, and it was like in those days, that's what Disneyland did. You had the coupons, right? There's a line of students wearing Vince Lombardi High School gym clothes, I still have the t-shirt with the green pants, with the gold piping. And Russ, I was in there as an extra, but so was Russ as the freshman. And a cameo by Ron Howard, Clint's brother. And we're all outside, and Eagle Bauer is going to charge us all because it was I think it was called Freshmen of the Caribbean or something sort of Pirates of the Caribbean. It was just this, you know, the tickets of uh, the Disneyland ticket, joke and so we would all have to step up give him our ticket that we had to pay for and then look in the window of the girls locker room
12: yeah well ron howard was had a dissociation with roger because he he directed grand theft auto and of course they they also had no association because clint was in his brother was in the movie so he did a a cameo for us and it's too bad we lost him in that in that shot absolutely i wish that and that i don't think that
9: footage exists anywhere that along with uh you know the um, the, op- the opening of Sunset Boulevard in in Rock and Roll High School. I think those are the two footage that they everyone wants to see.
14: Oh, and the, and the gas
9: chamber scene at the end of Double Indemnity. Yeah, that's it. Those are the big three. The experience of Rock and Roll High School is like one of the best of my life. As Russ was saying, we got completely spoiled because Alan was just so amazing and forthcoming and and giving and just wanting us to be involved on on every single level. It was it was just terrific. But I remember that screening. That screening was on a theater on Motor in Culver City that's no longer there anymore. And my memory is Devo was at the screening. Does that sound right, Russ?
12: Don't remember that, no.
9: I don't remember that either. I kind of remember. I thought it was. If you go on IMDb, there's a credit given to James Cameron that he was a production assistant. But I don't think anyone can confirm that.
12: Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember him being on, on the set because he was he was busy. He was doing Badly Young Stars, or at least preparing for it at that time. I don't think he may, he may have showed up for a, a day or so, but he was not really associated with the film as a.
9: So the night it opened in Los Angeles, Mike, it opened in a double feature with the movie The Kids Are All Right, a documentary about the Who, which, if I'm not mistaken, was also being released by New World Rogers Company, and so. Russ and I said, this is our first world premiere. And so not only are we going to eat dinner at Musso and Frank's, the legendary Hollywood uh, restaurant where writers like Ben Hecht and everyone used to go in the 30s, but Russ and I went to Hollywood Costume and rented a top hat and tails and a cane. (laughs) And we went and had well, dinner at yeah. Musso's, like like the legendary writers did, and we walked down Hollywood Boulevard wearing a top hat and cane, and to to see the movie uh, the premiere. I mean, there was no Klieg lights or anything, you know. But uh, it was great, you know, because what the heck, you don't you only have your first premiere once, and so yeah. that was pretty special. And that night when we were you know, signing autographs for two hours, I can't tell you how many people, because Russ and I were the last ones in line, the way it was set up, they would say, I'm a writer because of this movie. This is like my favorite movie. This movie influenced me. And it's like, whoa, it was just, it was so touching. And then of course, one 20 something year old girl said, would you sign my breast? Which was, you know, which was kind of my own, my only Mick Jagger moment of my life. So that was kind of nice.
12: Rockwell High School was a gateway for our, our career because it a lot of people in the movie just really liked it, and so we got a lot of, of uh, work off of it for many years. And uh, even when people didn't know that we wrote Rockwell High School, uh, when they found out, they go, "Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, that was my that was a big influence on me. You know, for the." for the uh, executives in the studio we were talking to. So uh, it really was an important step in our career. If, uh, if we hadn't had that movie made, if we hadn't had that credit, who knows what would have happened.
9: Absolutely. And a friend of mine, here this movie barely gets released. It's released in a double feature, for God's sakes.
11: Outside the preview, we had a sneak preview of the movie. It had gone over extremely well, and that was completely by luck. It was playing on a real cheap theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and by our happened since a bunch of people from the punk rock scene in L.A. had shown up at the theater because they wanted to see some movies on a cheap night and they walked in and out of nowhere these guys are so like 10 or 15 of them. Imagine sitting in a movie theater and they say there's a sneak preview and you're a punker in L.A. in 1978 and on comes a movie about the Ramones with the Ramones in it, you know. So obviously they went a little crazy and loved it. And I was accused of of, of stacking the house. we were kind of a little outside between myself and not so much Roger, but Roger's head of distribution who did not like the movie at all. The guy who sort of books it in the theaters. He really didn't like the movie. And I don't think he liked me much. You know, Roger had given me notes about cutting down the scenes between Kate and Riff in the bedroom. You know, they talk about pizza and all that stuff they wanted me to cut that scene in half, shorten it. And I said that that scene was really important because the, the relationships form there. And the fact that you spend time with those characters make you understand so much of what she believes in. So that when, when the principal sets the albums on fire, you can understand how this has gone. And her friend joins in the helper It leads to the kids. You understand why she would want to cause such a rebellion. You know, it's a big jump to take over the school. They listened, Roger actually listened to that and then they said there's too much of the Ramones in it. They would actually take out some of the references. Can you cut the songs in half? There's too many songs. And that was really a scary moment because I didn't want to do that. The picture when it opened didn't do well and this topic came up again. And the only reason that really, I wasn't forced to do it because of how much it would have cost because we couldn't cut the track, the optical track. We would have had to gone in and remixed the movie. The distribution got backed off, and they just kept saying, it's like a commercial for the Ramones. And I said, the only reason a large part of our audience is going to go see this movie is because they're a Ramones fan. You know, we have an album out and we have, that's going to come out, and we have an obligation to the record company. They put up $25,000. Know, and basically, they backed off. And, of course, obviously now, it would have been the movie that, that didn't do right by the Ramones. That's what I kept saying. There's nothing I hated more, I said, when I was a kid, it was when they'd show a band and they'd be late, you know, or you'd promise something and you only give kids half of it. We have the whole thing here, so we should do it. Basically, I kind of won that argument. So nothing actually changed after the preview.
0: Back then, it took a long time for Rockwell High School to be seen. I don't even think it was really seen that much in the industry. and It took a while. You know, it was played in the art houses, I think, you know, probably in New York city on a street playhouse and new art and la it just wasn't a widely released picture you know and it took a long time to get sort of cult status
9: cisco and ebert when they had at the movie still on pbs gave it a big review and roger ebert said this should be a midnight movie like rocky horror picture show this should be a cult movie and it kind of, that helped it a lot. He was always a big fan. I, I, I Growing up in Chicago, I read his reviews all the time. I actually called him up, and he took the phone call, and he was very nice. And, and I saw him at a restaurant once years later, and I introduced myself, and I go, you gave my movie a great review. I want to say thank you. And he said, what movie? I said, Rock and Roll He goes, oh, I love that movie, directed by Alan Arkish. I go, yeah. And Roger said, hey, you should meet a friend of mine. Uh, this is Russ Meyer. I swear to God, Russ Meyer said... You were rock and roll high school, and I go, you didn't. You know, uh, Battle of the Super Come on, it's like you know, rock and roll high school. You know, it's uh, Russ. Before you came on, I was saying about. I think maybe you heard some of it that, in film school, we read about these small, low-budget B movies that are now elevated by critics to the level of art to be studied, and to read articles about rock and roll high school that are flattering in that kind of cinematic way is it's just an odd feeling it's complimentary, I love it but it's just you know, this little $280,000 movie, you know, is still remembered, I'm just thrilled beyond belief Danny
10: Perry did a book called Cult Movies and he said it was the only American film uh, American commercial film in which a major American institution is destroyed and nobody gets punished he thought it was very subversive in that sense. And, you know, you couldn't do this ending today. You would be, you know, I mean, after Columbine and everything, you couldn't get away with this kind of ending. But it was a more innocent time. We didn't think that people would actually do things like this. I mean, it was kind of a fantasy. The idea of blowing up a high school just seemed completely unreal, you know, but it it was a fantasy and it was effective in the film.
12: We're both very proud of it. We we worked very hard on it, and everyone worked very hard on it, and, and uh, it still holds up today, so we're very pleased to buy it.
10: I'm very proud of it. I'm very happy to have been involved, and I'm thrilled that it keeps coming back in different DVD editions. And uh, uh, for a long time, it was... I mean, the, when Roger released the film, he didn't know what to do with it. He didn't realize it was a special kind of film, and he just dumped it on the, on the drive-in and neighborhood circuit like he did with any of his films and uh, uh, I, I'm, one of the things I'm proud of is that one of the theaters where it opened was the Texas Theater in Oak Cliff which is a suburb of Dallas this is where Lee Harvey Oswald was captured and so the film had its world premiere at that theater and uh, among others and, but it died immediately because it was this strange unusual film and you know so it kind of disappeared right away And after about a year, Siskel and Ebert, and I thank them a lot for doing this, they gave it a good review, and they said it was terrific. And some theater in Chicago started playing it as a midnight cult film, which is really the way to sell that kind of film. But you know, back then, they hadn't quite figured that thing out. The whole cult uh, midnight movie thing became a big deal after that. So it played for a year in Chicago, and other cities started playing it like that and it caught on. It was never going to be a big commercial success. Uh, Just like the Ramones were not a big commercial success, they were a cult band. You know, they couldn't get their records played on most radio stations because their material was too subversive and strange. I mean, they did songs about child abuse and about glue sniffing and things like that. And when they tried to go mainstream, they flopped. So it was always a cult film, but that, that, is, that gives it a certain cachet and a certain gorilla feeling to it. And I keep running into students who say it's their favorite film, and I hope they're telling me the truth. So over the years, it acquired quite a following. It became the first feature film that ever played MTV in its entirety. The problem with that, although that was great, uh, no theater would show it after that because it had already shown on TV. So the film kind of disappeared for a long time, and then the the home video revolution came along, and it started coming out on. Well, it took a long time to come out on VHS for some reason. I'm not sure why. It was missing for a few years, and then, but on DVD, it's been successful for a long time, one edition after another, and they keep they did a kind of restoration a few years ago. It looks really terrific. So, you know, it's doing very well for Roger. He had a reggae movie called The Harder They Come that was a surprise hit, and he called it My New Harder They Come. <laughs> that was his, his take on it. So it's been a good moneymaker for him. And I've, you know, I got royalty checks for like 25 years on the film. Not a lot of money, but it was nice to get checks. And then for a while he stopped paying, and I got the Writers Guild to uh, make him cough up again, you know, but he keeps keeps making money off it. To promote the, the
9: Blu-ray, the, the release of the Blu-ray, Mike, maybe you know this story, they screen Rock Roll High School sometimes at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery here in town. On the side of a huge mausoleum, not where people are sitting on top of graves, but they they have, like, screenings at the uh, at the cemetery, you know, where it gets dark in the summer, and people party and everything, and they got the food trucks and everything. So they showed Rock and Roll High School, and they had Mary was there, and everyone was there, and they had a live podcast, I think, um, you know, where Russ and I were interviewed. And so before it got dark, they had a long table where Russ... And Lauren Lester and P.J. and Day Young and Tommy Ramon and Dean Cundy and War- and Mary Warnoff, and we all lined up yeah. on these on the table to sign autographs, and we did it for almost two hours. And That's
12: right. The line was incredibly long. I couldn't believe it. Well, this, this movie. There's always revivals and and specials on the movie. So if if Whit or Wit wanted to, he'd go to three or four or five of these every year. People are are get together and discuss the movie either in showing some revival theaters or or some other celebration like like a, like a Johnny's um, Johnny uh, or Johnny Ramone's uh,
9: Cancer Fund promotes some of the, these every That's once right. in
12: a while. That's right. It was on his birthday. So, really, people still remember this movie very fondly. You can't imagine the number of times Whitley and I, both together and individually, in the strangest places, on the train, uh, at, at the workplace, when people say ask, start asking personal questions. Well, I, yeah, I, I used to be so in the movie business at Road Rock in High School. I can't believe it! That was my favorite film going up. And even among younger, younger kids now, they see it on, on, the, on the discs and, um, and on TV. But it used to be, be on MTV a lot. So they remember from them to, from then too, so uh, it's, it's still a whole sway for a lot of people and it's still very important to them. So and it's that's a big surprise to us. We never, we never thought it would be play out past the summer that it opened. When it opened, it opened very not very well. I mean, it didn't make very much money. So it really gained momentum over time.
8: I know they did one another rock and roll high school, but it didn't do as well. And I think maybe Mary Warnock was in it. She told me it was terrible. So I don't know.
9: I remember when that movie was going into production, I contacted the producer or director, said, listen, if you're going to make a sequel to this movie, you need to know there's three things. I didn't have Russ's list of four in front of me. I said, there's three that made Rock and Roll High School successful. And that's Alan Arkish, PJ Souls and the Ramones. If you don't have one of those three, it's not going to be successful you're not going to make a good movie. You need one of those three.
12: They didn't take your advice,
9: apparently. They did not. They did not. And I think they were. that's when Corey Feldman got arrested for heroin during the shooting of that movie. Um, that's
12: right, yeah.
9: But I started to watch the movie, and I've never finished it. And actually, Joe Dante gave me a VHS copy and he said he couldn't finish it and so maybe he did have a story by credit I don't know but I remember starting to watch it did you guys ever see Airplane 2 and like you're like 20 minutes in and go that's kind of exactly the same as what they did before but not really it was like weird deja vu and that's what it had at the beginning but I don't think is anyone from is anyone in both movies uh, Mary and both. Does she play Miss Togar?
3: No, she's Dr. Vader.
12: Oh, she's Dr. Vader. Hello. Yeah, to this day, yeah. I've never seen it, so I don't know.
3: You're one of the few actresses or actors that came back for Rock and Roll High School forever. How did you get involved in that one?
5: They hired me and paid me money. Um, also, I have to say that... Uh, Everybody was on a schedule and you made your whatever, uh, you know, you, you were there, you were on set. You, uh, it was entirely different. It was very, very businesslike, very clean. And the wonderful thing is Hollywood can do anything. I mean, I had to think of my own stunts in the first movie. In the second movie, they said, Miss Warren, you have this iron claw which can do anything. How would you like to? What if you uh, just, you know, did this and lit your cigarette with it? I said, can you do that? You're kidding. And they go, oh, yes, yes. They took it away for five minutes and came back. And it was, uh, there was a cigarette lighter in my finger. I mean, it was amazing what they could do. I mean, I had to do a pratfall. I said, you know, I just can't do this. They go, oh, no, no, you can, you can. And they make it so easy. Hollywood is a fabulous place. They can make anything happen.
9: Oh, here's the cool thing. So because of Rock and Roll High School, you probably know that the man who created the mouse was inside the giant costume is Rob Bottin. Russ and I were brought on to come up with an idea for Rob, being a speci- uh, being, you know, costume and special effects expert, to direct a movie. And my memory is, Russ, we came up with this out of whole cloth, or was this given to us? But uh, Russ's and uh, my idea, because they wanted Paul and Mary, is that we came up... You have to remember, this is 1980. So we came up with, or 79, the big broadcast of 1999. And it was going to be basic, the premise of the Bob Hope movie, the big broadcast. And so, in 1999, it's a race to the moon. Ocean liner, race to the moon. But... It's a sleek spaceship. The the, the sleek, futuristic spaceship is run by Mary and Paul. They're going to win the race. The challenger, the underdog, they've retrofitted the Queen Mary. And the Queen Mary is now a spaceship where the smokestacks are sticking out of this like clear plastic bubble that it's in, right? And what's going to happen is that in this race to the moon is that (laughs) We find out that the Queen Mary's secret power source is rock and roll. It, we needed an excuse, like in the big broadcast, to have rock acts, be camp, do cameos and stuff. So we are going to have nonstop rock and roll acts funneling and giving the power to the ship. And at night, when everyone was asleep, it was a series of Elvis impersonators that would sing one song and pass out, and then, you know. But the head waiter on board the Queen Mary is the original head waiter from the old days of the ship going to be played by Hunts Hall. And his grandson, this is what Russ and I envisioned. And his grandson was going to be played by Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick. Cause Cheap Trick loved rock and high school, still wanted to work with us. And we all got together and it was going to be Cheap Trick. And they're like an unknown band. They're going to sneak on the Queen Mary cause his grandfather is going to sneak them on.
3: I'm glad I'm not the only one that thought that those guys looked so similar.
12: I that's Absolutely. Yes. And it's too bad. It was a fun idea. We had, we had, we had, I know we had a couple of meetings on it and then it just disappeared. I don't know why. We did a whole
9: treatment on it.
12: Uh, uh, Mike, have you ever heard of a band called uh, the Rizzolos? Okay. they were a band out of Glasgow, Scotland. And uh, when the Ramones toured England, they were the uh, band with them. And they were a, a really, really good uh, band that was part punk and part pop. That's another example of work I got from, from Rockwell High School. Uh, Alan was somehow associated with uh, these two producers and they wanted to come up with a, a movie called Bikini Space Party. So I wrote the movie Bikini Space Party. We tried to get this band in it and uh, you know the, the financing fell through. But that's just one example of how Rockwell High School really set in motion the career for both of us. I mean we, we really got a lot of work just from that one move. That's how I got Rock in our hotel. One guy uh, said, you know, uh, this the, the Rockwell High School, why don't we get the guy who wrote uh, Rockwell Hotel, uh, Rockwell High School to write this, this script? Uh, you know, so, so they said, okay. So they, that's how I got the call, only because of Rockwell High School.
9: And you know what? The independent film industry was not as revered them. I mean, Roger Corman was still making B movies. And a friend of mine who's a fan of the film said, you know, if Rock and Roll High School was made today, you'd be nominated for an Independent Spirit Award.
8: <laughs> 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 Which is, you know, kind of funny, but why the hell not, you know? I know that Howard Stern might have the rights to the next one or something. I already he got the rights for a couple of... Movies like Porky's, and his two favorite movies was like Porky's and Rock and Roll High School or something, and he got the rights for both of those. So, he hasn't done anything yet with them that I know of.
9: There's rumors now that uh, Howard Stern wants to remake the movie, and I'm sure you guys, we've all heard that, but honestly, in this post-Columbine 9-11 world, is blowing up the high school still going to be relevant? (laughs) It has such different connotations, doesn't it? Yeah. Is anyone still going to be able to do a movie like that's such a cartoon? We have a giant mouse wearing an apron that says, "I hate mouse work." You know, I mean, that's, you know, worried that her children are exploding in in the school. It's just a little bit of a cartoon, you know, and uh, to say the least. And, (laughs) oh, and there's another, there's a rock band called Exploding White Mice. A friend of mine sent me the album, and all it it had was attached to it was a post-it and says, see what you've done. This has been a gas, Mike. This has just been terrific.
11: Uh, I tried to give you some different stuff than, I, you know and is available normally.
3: Something about Evelyn Togar just always uh, does it for me, so I don't know (laughs) if it's an outfit or what. I would be careful of your sex life then.
1: (laughs) Let's take a look now at a cheerful new contender for cult status. It's hard to
2: predict where the cult film audience is going to turn next because, after all, cult fans specialize in staying out of step with everyone else, but there is one new film this year that does seem to have a chance of breaking into the cult big time. It's a cheap but lively little musical called Rock and Roll High School, It's already been successful at midnight shows in Chicago and Toronto, and it embraces the favorite message of all cult films, which is down with the establishment. Rock and roll (laughs) high school stars a punk rock group called the Ramones, and the, the funny thing is the look and sound of the singers in the Ramones seems to have been partly inspired by none other and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Will Rock and Roll High School be the next cult classic? Gene, I think that's what you're predicting, right? Yes, I know that kids
13: are going to like the scene where they burn down the high school. (laughs) I also think this is one of those uh, rock
3: and roll will never die films. Those have been popular for 20 years. Uh, But I'm a little bit nervous. You're 37, I'm 33. Here we are, people slightly over 21 recommending cult films. I don't know, do we know what we're talking about? Are
1: you saying if this program recommends Rock and Roll High School, that's the kiss of death?
3: In a way, maybe, because... uh, I don't think the people who go to cult films want to have them picked for them by somebody else. They so, want to discover them their own.
2: So if you like Rock and Roll High School,
1: you didn't hear it here first. <laughs>
14: okay. okay. Rock, 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 rock high school. But I don't care about history. Rock, rock.
1: And thanks to that whole raft of guests for taking the time to talk to us about rock and roll high school. And there's some bonus interviews over at our website, projection booth.com. If you want to hear some more and you can check out those, but for now we're talking about rock and roll high school and uh, like any good idea, sometimes um, there are sequels. And uh, in this case, uh, there's a couple of films that kind of uh, tie back into rock and roll high school. And well, I mean, obviously there is rock and roll high school forever, But let's talk about uh, some of these films that are connected in here, Mr. Mike.
3: So what did folks think of Rock and Roll Hotel? Why did I pick Rock and Roll Hotel to be talked about in this? Well, two reasons. It's got a very similar title, Rock and Roll High School versus Rock and Roll Hotel. And one of the co-writers was Russ Devonch, who was the co-writer on Rock and Roll High School. So I was thinking there was going to be a real connection between the two like Rock and Roll Hotel was kind of a sequel to Rock and Roll High School. Uh no. Definitely not a sequel. I think it the similarities kind of end at the title. But my god, Rock and Roll Hotel. I know Adam that you are a huge fan of this movie.
4: <laughs> Very true. The the first thing I noticed uh I knew I was in for a treat was when I put on the I played the link and the first thing I saw was that the video was tracking was tracking so so um I, I appreciate that it was actually scanned from a vhs and a really really beat up vhs that was perfect
1: well let's just take a minute to reminisce about tracking when was the last time you saw tracking i mean it was like it was like visiting an old friend it's like oh tracking oh how i've missed you
4: exactly exactly like what what what, what, what did they used to do to fit on like several movies onto one vhs they would stretch the tape
3: you could use oh, the- slp
4: Yes, yes, uh, SLP. This was a pan and scan, wasn't it?
3: Oh, God. I don't even think it was pan and scan. I think it was just full frame right in the middle of the frame. So however it was transferred, I don't think there was any any kind of effort put in to show you either side of the frame because it was just dead center on yeah. what was probably a, a widescreen or at least a 1.85 to 1. And yeah, you were missing a lot of picture information here.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of two shots in there that ended up being half of it each face <laughs> on the edge of the screen.
3: Well, I can't help but
4: think it all worked to its advantage. But I do think that Rachel Sweet is is pretty cute.
3: This to me was like a Rachel Sweet vanity project because she is all over this movie. She's like the musical coordinator. She sings. She acts it is produced or co-produced by someone named Richard Sweet.
4: I think Richard Sweet actually might be her father.
3: Okay, I wasn't sure if that was her father or her husband or her brother or her sister's neighbor, whatever it was, but yeah, it seems like there was a connection there. And she's the star of the show, man.
4: I'm pretty sure she wrote all the songs, um, too. Lyrics and music, etc.
3: Oh yeah, she she helped co-write a lot of the songs, and I, I had no idea who Rachel Sweet was, and then I was looking up her Wikipedia entry, and my god, she's been all over the place. She has done just a ton of stuff, and she's still working today. She's like a whole, uh, producer on uh, Hot in Cleveland, that Betty White show. And before that, she was all over, and she had a record deal, and has all these singles out for years. She sang on the Hairspray soundtrack, which will talk a little bit more about Hairspring a little bit here. So yeah, she has had uh, a fairly major career, and I had no idea who she was.
4: I think if you if Mike, if you read all the way to the end of that Wikipedia entry, uh, you'll you'll note that perhaps the most interesting factoid is that she actually had owned and since sold uh, a house previously owned by Madonna for like $5 million or something. So she's probably sitting on a nice little pile of cash.
3: Yeah, and I don't think it was Rock and Roll Hotel money. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no! Well, I wanted to bring up first that this movie was shot in Richmond, Virginia. So there's this whole Richmond connection. Like if you go out and you know Google around and stuff, you're going to find all these like kind of uh, articles written about Rock and Roll Hotel from this kind of Richmond angle and everything. So I, I guess that's Richmond at the opening when she does her voiceover and it's like, you know, this is my town. And I do have to say, man, it's like one of the worst voiceovers I've ever heard before. Like her singing voice is pretty good, but her speaking voice, I'm not a big fan of. And that fucking voiceover is just, it doesn't want to end sometimes. And then every once in a while, she'll just kind of jump in with a comment for over the voiceover. And it's like, no, no, just stop it. Stop it. Give me to give it to me in the beginning maybe a little bit at the end i don't need this constant narration there she is my city and from every high rise someday they'll be blasting my songs there's johnny he's the boy who's all know how the boy with expertise some hunk huh
4: you know, I, I think often people put in voiceovers after the fact in order to, like a band aid, in, or, in order to fix, fix the film. And uh, there, there was, this was clearly such a mess and so horribly made that it was probably entirely incoherent. Not that the voiceover helped very much. I still couldn't really understand most of the storyline.
1: Beyond the tracking at the opening, which you said, oh, I'm, I'm in trouble, was there's an error, a very glaring error in the opening in the credits? I was just like, oh, because it's this freeze frame for no reason that goes into motion with Judd Nelson on the side of the road with a guitar. And it sits there for like, ah, it's got to be like 10 seconds. And I'm like, why is this still frame? I'm like, why, <laughs> like, why isn't he moving? And it was just bizarre to, to have that. I just like kind of put my antenna up as to this is probably not going to be very good. And then, like you said, that voiceover is pretty bad. And the other thing that I love about the film is that it doesn't it it obviously doesn't deal in reality, at least in the first minute and a half, because after they pick up Judd Nelson and I was trying to figure out exactly when this was. And you say 83, although the credits say 86, Mike, I thought this was that period, you know, later in the 80s when Judd Nelson's kind of star had fallen a bit and he was doing all kinds of weird stuff. But there's this scene where they're in the car and they pick him up and he's like refuses to play. He refuses to play guitar for them. And he sort of turns his back to them and starts playing. And when he does, it's like, man, I didn't know you could get that good a tone with a guitar that's not plugged in. And then she's singing along and no wind noise from that convertible car. It was just amazing.
3: It is definitely a rock and roll fantasy, if you will. (laughs) Because, yeah, he's got an amp going. And then at one point they bring in trumpets, even though there's no trumpets. And, yeah, this is where the drums would go.
1: Like if if we want to like walk down the premise, it's basically there's a radio station where Colin Quinn, uh, which I wrote in my notes, go back to remote control.
3: You were better there during this period. Colin Quinn's performance in this movie is something to not be believed. Like, he moves his shoulders whenever he talks and stuff. It's it's almost like he's trying to force the words out of his mouth. It's like, it's almost like he has that worm from Poltergeist 2 inside of him, and he's trying to get that out of there or something. It's just like, what are you doing here? You're listening to radio station WROC, home of the Screaming
6: Believers, and HQ to your very own Roaming Romeo over the airwaves. Mr. E.J. Bodine will be here till dawn.
3: Okay, let's get a good look right into this rock and
1: roll game. So buckle up, grab your joy toy, and remember,
6: DJ says rock is a four-letter word. This next song is a special request for Ozzy's wife, Harriet. Oh, you remember her. DJ's a close personal friend of that special gal. Also on the line of Trixie Norton, Lucy, and Ethel Mertz. Oh, gosh, I could go on and on. Just mention the name and bait, I still get Randy Pants. When that hussy wasn't baking pies for Opie, watch out. Remember all you kids out there in WROC, rock and roll land, DJ loves to rock. So if any of you zipper heads have a demo that you think is hot, 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 slam it on down to the big D, king of the killer radio, and he'll give it his spin. Who doggy!
1: The radio station that he works at where he's a DJ is going to change from heavy rock to easy listening. And instead of it being an evil principal. It's an evil radio station owner, of course, another woman school mom type. And then there's this whole thing with uh, Lisa and her band, the third dimension and how they're trying to get to the rock and roll high school or excuse me, the rock and roll hotel. And they're trying to get some press. And there's this, of course, battle of the bands, which is a standard cliche in most rock and roll movies, I'd say. So there's all of these sort of like, cliches to get piled up on top of each other in this film and they're kind of poorly executed and then the copy that we're looking at doesn't look all that good like you said the, it's basically locked down instead of even pan and scan so you're missing part of the image and i don't even know if that would help you and then at some point they're interacting with i don't know what is that thing is it like a animatronic
3: otter or something what what the hell is it it's a raccoon it's like the early version of rocket raccoon from the guardians of the galaxy So if you like uh, the Guardians of the
1: Galaxy, you should watch this movie.
3: I have no idea why there's a raccoon in the Rock and Roll Hotel, other than maybe he's Rocky Raccoon from the Beatles song or something. Yes. (laughs) Which
4: may be some sort of reference to the life-size mouse that's in the concert scenes of Rock and Roll High School.
3: At least that, and I'm going to say this out loud, at least that makes sense.
4: I mean, these kinds of things like that cr- cr- raccoon should have been the result of a very um, druggy set. And uh, I doubt that that's th- I really don't even think that's the case uh, with this movie, though. Uh, who knows?
1: Uh, Heavy Metal Massacre. It's rock and roll hotel. Look like Citizen Kane. Uh, the, the, the folks over at OT at, uh, outside the cinema will uh, tell you that that palette in that movie uh, outacted every actor in that movie. So there you have it. Heavy Metal Massacre
3: funny as i'm looking for rock and roll hotel in my files i'm coming across rock and roll nightmare and i'm just like oh i'd rather watch that again because i had to watch rock and roll hotel twice it's not worth a second viewing i mean there's probably going to be a couple people in richmond who are really bad at us for saying that but my god i mean you mentioned mrs velteen the uh, or Ms. velteen the the evil owner of the radio station and she's got this whole like weird thing about her shoes. And there's this kind of like lesbian relationship with this woman who I guess works there. And then she just disappears. Like she is gone. And there's this whole character of this like fairy godmother who is a street person and she gives Colin Quinn a motorcycle. She disappears. I mean, the whole movie just seems so thrown together.
4: Mother dumpster. Yes.
3: Yes we have no idea what the rock and roll hotel is for most of the movie. We finally get there and I still don't know what the hell it is because it seems like people don't age when you're in there because Dick Sean, the guy who was brilliant as um, Hitler in springtime for Hitler and the, the original producers, he's there and apparently he's been there from the fifties or something. I mean, to me, it seems like a wax museum with a pulse
1: because when they're walking down the the hallway, there's this guy that comes out and it's like, "Hey, do you have? Do you give me an e string." And it's like, "Sure, I'll get you that." And then they're like talking amongst themselves. It's like, "Is that who I think it is?" It's like, "Yeah." And it's a guy dressed up like Jimi Hendrix. So to me, it seems like a place where it's like either dead musicians go, or you know, people who are like hiding out from the world or something. It's some sort of like a witness protection program for uh, musicians, I guess. I don't know.
3: It seems like you would have had just one more character, like maybe a Jim Morrison type or something that might've shown up. But yeah, like even a mama Cass, for
1: God's sakes. And then there's this one part that really kind of uh, like threw me off is she's, in several parts of the film, trying to get press and try to get attention. So she's on stage, she sings, she comes off stage and sits down at the table next to the journalist. And she's like, what are you writing? You know, what are you writing about me? And he like, she like grabs his notebook or whatever. And it says first was Janice. Now there's Lisa. And then she starts making out with him. And I'm just like, "Eh, you really shouldn't make out with journalists. That's not a
3: good idea. No, you don't know what they've got.
4: There's one big showstopper, though, in the that actually came off pretty well, I thought, considering, by comparison, which was late in the film, they pull out all the stops, and it's like Dick Shawn and the actress who plays his wife, who's apparently a real dancer, and they've got a whole backup, of, you know, troupe of dancers in it, and um, I thought that one was actually really, you know, pretty good. This was um, during the Battle of the Bands, you know, portion of the film.
3: Oh yeah, it's the Carl Perkins song. The uh, what was it? The Pink Pedal Pushers or something?
4: Yeah, that's the one. I thought. I thought that. You know, I I'm not big into musicals, but I thought that was, a, you know, a pretty professional uh, a number.
3: You can find a ruby in a mountain of rocks if you look hard enough. I suppose
4: the only other quasi compliment I'll extend uh, about this fiasco is uh, to Rachel Sweet, who could, assuming she did write these songs, I, I thought that she was able to make good ersatz numbers like there was the Madonna song there was like a Cindy Lauper song a Joan Jett song she was very good at kind of writing rip off songs um so she could write a hook so that that's the only other thing I'll, I'll mention that's positive
3: one other thing to add to the um the funeral pyre that is rock and roll hotel apparently this movie was shot in 3D the yeah in the credits there's all these things about like 3D you know assistant to the director 3D this 3D that and I'm just like I didn't even see any like of those cheesy, you know, guitar coming towards the camera Mad Max Fury Road type things. It was just like all of a sudden, you know, like I didn't see people pointing spears or anything at the the camera. It just I don't know why this would have been in 3D. And I'm kind of hoping maybe like 3D actually stands for something else in these credits or something. But unfortunately, I think this was 3D film.
4: Well, it was probably good for the marketing of the movie. They could, you know, say something like, not since Dial in for Murder has a 3D movie been so anticipated. I think I I might be mistaken, but I think a lot of the 3D. Work was done in the pro- uh, well in the projection booth, if I can use that expression, uh, 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 rather than in the production. I'm not really that certain, but that 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 might have been what was going on there.
1: I just got to say that between Rock and Roll High School and the next film we're going to talk about, that it's it, it's amazing that black people haven't banded together and taken back rock and roll from white folks. It's just they're so atrocious. It's such atrocity, and. Uh, you know, disrespect for the whole uh, term rock and roll, that really, if if black folks were to come back and say, y- you've destroyed rock and roll and white folks, you don't deserve it anymore. I, I can understand.
3: It's amazing how things change over a period of 12 years. Between rock and roll high school, 1979, and then rock and roll high school forever in 1991, what the hell happened to our country? Was it was it Ronald Reagan and George Bush? What happened? Because it's like rock and roll high school forever is one of the biggest cinematic abortions that I've seen in a long time. And I just, I mean, maybe had I seen it in 19, no, even if I had seen it in 1991 as a 19 year old, I still would have thought it was horrible. This movie, it just stinks on ice. Oh my God. And so much of it just lands squarely at the feet of the star, Corey Feldman. Wow. I mean, Corey Feldman has made some bad movies, but this definitely has to be ranked amongst the top of his bad movies.
1: They try to pick up where the first one left off, but they change so many elements and then keep so many elements that it's really bizarre. They should have just blew up the whole thing and started from zero because first off the school, instead of being Vince Lombardi high, which, you know, really wasn't a joke. It's like, whatever it's Vince Lombardi high, uh, becomes Ronald Reagan high. And then there's all of these sort of references to Reagan and the Reagan era and the yuppies and all of this stuff, but it all feels really flat. And then when you talk about Corey Feldman, it's like new kids who are into rock music at this time, and they did not like Michael Jackson. And there's all of this reference to like him walking around and doing like Michael Jackson moves that it's like no no no. Like no self-respecting kid who was into rock music in the early 90s would have thought Michael
3: Jackson was cool. More than Corey Feldman, you know, I said all the blame falls at his feet. I imagine that a lot of the blame goes over to Michael Jackson because in my mind Corey Feldman was probably a victim of Michael Jackson and more than just being, you know, diddled by jackson i mean he kind of adopted yeah you're right all those like the looks the clothes the hat the dance moves and i mean if you want to see a white boy trying to dance like michael jackson oh it is awkward it is so awkward and he just kind of like ingrains it into his personality so when he does his little flips and dance moves and like his arms going out it just looks so wrong and he's got that nasty long hair in this film because Corey Feldman, he could be a handsome guy and he looks okay when his hair is pulled back but when it is just kind of like, he kind of looks like Michael Hutchins from In Excess a little bit in all the wrong ways and then he puts on that fucking fedora, man and I just want to, like, you know I, I can't stand it.
4: yeah You 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 kind of hope that he's going to tie a belt around his neck at certain point.
3: Our friends over at We Hate Movies did this movie just a while back. And when they were describing it, I was like, there's no way it can be this bad. But it is that bad. In fact, I think it's actually worse seeing it than you know hearing these guys who can really take apart a bad movie and kind of put it back together. I mean, God help them for, for going through and watching this thing. I mean, one of the, the first problems that I have with the movies, we've got Larry Linville – known to most people, at least of my age as major Frank Burns. And he's in there at the beginning and he's kind of in there at the end, but then he seems to be missing through most of it. And then you have Mary Warnov come over and she takes over as <sighs> Dr. Vader. She's not Evelyn Togar anymore. She's Dr. Vader and she's missing a hand. So you have this fake hand that she's wearing and it's not even clever like A Fistful of Chopsticks from Kentucky Fried Movie where, you know, she's changing the hand to do different things. There's so few attempts at jokes. I mean, just so much of the film just seems so wrongheaded. Like, for one example, just one example. So the kids are the the, the band, the Eradicators, which always reminds me of the Kids in the Hall skit. Hi!
6: Ah. And the Eradicator.
3: The Eradicators are going through the high school and they're setting up all this kind of stuff, all these trip wires and cameras and all this kind of garbage. The soundtrack, for some reason, it's the theme from Hawaii 5.0. I would think maybe you want to use the theme from Mission Impossible or some sort of like spy thing. Instead, it's this jaunty Hawaii 5.0 theme. And I'm like, what the hell are you guys doing? That is just the, could you not get the rights? And if you couldn't get the rights, why are you using Hawaii 5
4: The bits in in Rock and Roll High School were very inspired. They were funny. They were cute. They were always inspired. The the bits in this movie are hackneyed and,
1: and lazy. The only sort of production scene that I liked in here that I thought was pretty good is in the beginning. I mean, it first off sets the tone for you because Corey's doing this fourth wall breaking, he's talking to the camera. The staging and editing of the whole flushing scene, I thought was well done. Like they spent a lot of time putting that together. Like they had the camera on the tracks and cut it all together. It pays off okay. But the whole thing is, is I'm like, okay, the production value is okay there, and then everything sort of goes downhill, like like quality wise, and then if this is supposed to be like the worst thing ever, is banned that Feldman has, they do really awful music. Like they do these really bad covers that are not inspired. Like, it, like I could understand if they were like a metal band, you know, or a hardcore band or something, but they're not, they're doing like tutti frutti, like really bad version of it. Like, like I would rather listen to the Pat Boone version of that, which is fucking atrocious too. But it's like the whole concept I guess is that Reagan represents conformity. And that's what you get with these students who are like, oh, teacher, you know, the kids aren't taking it serious. And they're like the yuppies. But the problem is, is even the nonconformists are so conformed that they they're not even interesting. Like they're not really even rebels.
3: Like they're barely like rebellious. It's terrible. Well, if you're going to steal all these ideas from rock and roll high school, one of them that you should probably do is bring in an outside band of note. Rather than having Corey Feldman's band be kind of the main protagonists of the film. And yeah, they're doing horrible, horrible covers. They're not threatening at all. So there's no reason why anybody should be like, oh my God, the Eradicators, this band is, they're, they're, they're going to ruin our children's minds or whatever. There's just none of that because yeah, they're doing fucking Trudy Fruity. They're doing covers of old fifty songs. And then when they do something quote unquote original, it just sounds like a lame hard rock song from the late eighties. And it's like, again, we're not doing that. I would rather hear, the Love at the Laundromat song, personally, I felt that there was more to that, which was this other band that apparently we're supposed to hate because they have like synth stuff going on, but there's nothing punk rock about this movie at all. And it just, it it kind of floors me just, how bad it is. And you, you brought up the, the Reaganites, the, the yuppies and stuff to me, it felt like rather than rock and roll high school that they're ripping off where all of the kids were kind of in it together. I mean, other than Hansel and Gretel, you know, yeah, you've got the football players picking on the freshmen, this kind of stuff, but really they all kind of banded together with these yuppies and stuff. I was totally reminded of animal house with the, you know, the other frat and sorority and you know, you've got you know the the Delta House taking on the rules and the rules lost, and here you've got the, the Eradicators kind of gently prodding the other people and not really doing a very good job at being funny about it or clever.
1: No, and in terms of the music, I mean, let's go back to another episode that we did, Black Roses. Like one can understand given that time, which is almost the same time as this, that that band in Black Roses was more threatening (laughs) than the band that's in this. Like, this is just a, like, I don't understand. Like the only thing I can figure out is they blew all the money to get Corey Feldman and they didn't have any money to either hire a band or pay for music rights. And therefore they had to do all these, like, you know, which I guess at that time would have been almost, you know, public domain. Or they would have been cheap songs to just get the rights to perform.
3: Remember when we talked about Trancers 2 and just the production values of Trancers 2 where it always felt like we're going to do a – single shot of this actor and then we're going to cut it with a single shot of this actor. So basically it doesn't look like the two actors were even anywhere near them. You know, where it was just like, you know, was this actor even on set when you were on set to Thomerson? you know, it just felt like this very you know disconnected way of shooting. I had that same kind of shooting thing with rock and roll high school forever, where it was like, here's the rest of Corey's band. And then here's Corey. And I'm just like, were you coming in on a different day to shoot these? And it just feels like every time they show him, it feels like they had just said action right before. And then he delivers his little quip or whatever. Cut, print. All right, now, Corey, we're going to do the next one. Action. You know, it's like it just felt like it was so pieced together. And there's something to be said about Eisensteinian montage, but this is not the time or the place for that.
4: I guess the verdict is just say no to rock and roll high school forever. You know, this a movie is bad when it's biggest strength is watching rock and roll hotel afterward.
1: The whole thing is, is that they take set pieces and ideas from the first film and amp them a little bit. Now, first off the idea that the Paul Bartel character, who's not played by Paul Bartel in here would be the principal and kind of be, you know, that, that really didn't work for me. And then when, Mary Voronoff shows up to be the new principal and it's like you said, they have this whole thing with the, with the her, with the hand, which reminded me actually of inspector gadget, which would have been around this time or a little earlier, which is what I was watching with the claw or whatever the guy, you know, that you never see his face. And of course, because in order to be a fascist, we got to borrow all that SS and Nazi stuff because that's not original so there's all of this thing with her and her two minions who are dressed like SS stormtroopers. So I'm just like, god,
3: it's like you guys
1: don't have an original
3: idea in your head, do you? Screaming Steve character shows up again or a guy who says his name is Screaming Steve. This guy was so awful. I thought it was actually Dave Kendall playing him, Dave Kendall of MTV's 120 minutes who I just could never stand. And it's fucking, it's Richard Blade, who's now like a DJ on Sirius XM, and it's like, wow, if I had any sort of respect for you before, it is right out the window, because you, I know Screaming Steve, sir, and you are no Screaming Steve. I'm trying to figure out what
1: this whole thing with the fridge is. What the fuck was that scene? Okay, so there's a scene where Corey sees an ad in the paper for a fridge from the 60s, and... For some reason, he's enamored with mid-century modern appliances I that. They go to this lady's house and they pretend to be like from the church of the refrigerator or something. And they do this big song and dance number around this thing in the basement and around the refrigerator. And I don't understand what
3: that is even about. It doesn't make any sense. No, and it's, it's as far from funny as you can possibly get. And then them opening up their clothes and having household appliances and kitchen utensils, and then the old lady and the man just screaming their heads off. I'm like, what? what is going on? I mean, this felt like, you know, Godard directed this scene. I was just like, what? I'm completely flummoxed by this.
4: And uh, frankly, I was also very confused as to why Mary Warnoff would have agreed to be, participate in this movie. Uh, she had uh, done so many great turns in a number of classical films already. And then she ends up slumming it in this movie. I, I have no idea why she agreed to participate in this. It's confusing. Same with Larry Linville, who, like you said, was was barely even in, in the movie. Larry Linville, what a great talent. He was uh, did some great work in M.A.S.H., like you mentioned. And here he's completely, utterly wasted.
3: No, and anybody who's like, oh, hey, it's a sequel to Rock and Roll High School. Who's about to jump at that thing? Well, at least the writer-director of Rock and Roll High School, Deborah Brock, she would go on to be one of the co-producers of Buffalo 66. So we also have that to thank her for, too. Not a big Gallo fan, eh? I am not. Sorry. That's really the only thing on her her CV. She did Slumber Party Massacre 2, Andy Colby's Incredible Adventure. Uh, She was co-executive producer on Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Associate producer on One Tough Bastard, and then, yeah, her uh, last thing, oh, I guess she was in one called Caught in the Headlights, or wrote one called Caught in the Headlights. Now I have to track down Andy Colby's incredible adventure.
1: No, you don't. You you can live your whole life and not feel you got cheated. I haven't seen it, but I can tell you, you probably didn't get cheated.
3: Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Let's come to our final kind of uh, journey here on the riffing of Rock and Roll High School. There was a series in the 90s that Robert Rodriguez kind of put together with Showtime called Rebel Highway, and it was stories kind of taken from the 1950s. Uh, I've really only seen now two of them. I'm trying to think. I think the first one I saw was Rebel Rousers or Rebel Racers, not to be confused with Rebel Rebel, which was actually the Hamburglar story. Road Racers was the
1: Road title. Racers. It was Robert Rodriguez uh, uh, cable film, yeah.
3: And was David Arquette in that? Am I remembering right? I can't
1: remember. I, I just remember the title, that's all.
3: Well, there was this one, which was called Shake, Rattle, and Rock from 1994, directed by Alan Arkish, so going back to the original director. And then we have Day Young, Mary Warnoff, P.J. Souls all returning in this film. And they are basically playing the same named characters but they are obviously not the same characters because this is set squarely in the 1950s also Nora Dunn is there and she's uh one of the four mothers that are in this film and Nora Dunn is the mother of Renee Zellweger Renee Zellweger this is Renee Zellweger when she didn't have that messed up face that she has now she was you know the cute Renee Zellweger and she's a rock and roller, and she goes on this TV show that Howie Mandel hosts, and it's a dance show, and there's all this stuff about integration. There's this black band who wants to come on and be on the show, and but unfortunately, this uh, show isn't integrated. But the host is kind of hip to it, and and the only thing that uh, really kind of shocked me about this was that it wasn't set in Baltimore.
1: Yeah, it really is hairspray. Like, and even the design and color scheme and everything, it does, it did remind me a lot of hairspray. The one thing that I liked about bringing back all of them, uh, who were in Rock and Roll High School, and having them play the opposite, is that you get the idea that maybe these were the mothers of, you know, the the, the characters we get in Rock and Roll High School. It's it, it looks nice. Uh, I think it has some good ideas. But to me, like I said, I'm like, well, I'll just watch Hairspray is what I kind of thought when I looked at it. So I'm
3: glad I wasn't the only one thinking Hairspray. Adam, were you also on the Hairspray tip? Yeah, as I was
4: watching it, um, there was something nagging at me about how there was something very familiar about this movie and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then you mentioned Hairspray in an email or something like that. And I said, yes, yes, that's what it is. A lot of a lot of uh, similarities. And my thoughts about Renee Zellweger is I think she did a pretty good job in the movie in, in general, her acting and whatnot. Uh, and even her lip syncing, even her lip syncing was, was, was fine. It was the match of the voice that was just, for me, didn't work at all. I just thought it, it was really a mismatch. Uh, the voice and the, and the physical person just didn't go together at all
3: there's definitely some problems with that. I mean, because her, her speaking voice is very distinctive and and to have a singer who just sound well, I guess the best real world example I can give is it's like knowing that Gomer Pyle could sing like Jim neighbors. And to me, there was always that weird discrepancy, you know, which was a real world thing. Apparently he sang like Jim neighbors. He was Jim neighbors, but when he would, Get up there and start belting out the songs. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. There's no way that that voice is coming from this guy.
2: This famous TV acting star is loved by countless millions as Gomer File, but now he's also loved as America's romantic recording star. Has already won four gold record awards. And now we proudly offer the most beautiful recordings ever made by Jim Neighbors. And honey, I miss you. Yes, here is all the heart-touching
1: magic of Jim Neighbors in one exclusive collection. The open for me was also another note back to John Waters in that the opening credits in this. I was like, man, they should have did a nicer credit sequence than this. It just the opening credits really kind of bothered me. What is Renee Zellweger in a room kind of running around and acting out like what the lyrics say in The Girl Can't Help It by Little Richard? The use of Girl Can't Help It will always be indelible in my mind, like stuck in the middle with you and Reservoir Dogs or singing in the rain and Clockwork Orange. Girl Can't Help It is that's in Pink Flamingos. And it will always be Divine walking through Baltimore and doing what Divine's doing in that scene. And when I heard that, I go, this is like, and then later when I was watching it, with the whole thing with the integration and the TV show and all that stuff, I'm like, I don't know if this is trying to reference John Waters and Hairspray and all that stuff. I I, I probably doubt it, but it just kind of really felt like it.
4: Arkish was definitely paying an homage to the um, early, those Frank Tashlin movies.
3: Well it's it's funny, I didn't realize that there was a nineteen fifty six movie called Shake Rattle and Rock, which actually has a lot of these things that were in the Arkish version. This whole idea of, you know, a group of concerned adults I'm just reading from IMDb. Concerned adults try to ban rock and roll music from their town because they think that the music promotes juvenile delinquency. It's up to a radio disc jockey and a hipster to defend the music in a televised trial. The movie also features several rock and roll performances, most notably Fest Domino. I'm curious now to go back and watch the original Shake, Rattle, and Rock and see how much of that informs Hairspray. But I don't, I think that there was such a small period of time. I mean, 1956 when shake rattle and Rock comes out to 1994 and if there if it is a, uh, a remake it's an uncredited remake unfortunately and uh, compared that 56 to 94 t- from uh, 1988 to 94 that that was the difference between hairspray and the shake rattle and rock by Arkish it definitely was ringing much more true to that than to anything else especially having your character on the television show and you know the god the the scene when the the parents are going into the in this case it's a chinese area it's not a black area because they're playing at this old uh former chinese restaurant i mean i was expecting one of them to get grabbed by piazadora and uh rico Kasich or something it was just like it, it just was way too spot on. I mean, it was just like kind of, you could draw parallel lines between so much of the stuff that was happening in this. And really to me, what was missing though, was that whole, you know, the, the self identity. I mean, it was one thing for Renee Zellweger to want to be a rocker and stuff, but I liked that Ricky Lake was both the hair hopper and that she was a full figured woman. And you had that whole idea of her kind of fighting on multiple fronts rather than just i want to be a rock singer and you know she <laughs> her the woman that gave her her voice in the film had a good voice but yeah i totally agree with you adam it wasn't necessarily the right voice for zelliger
4: i think the also the um the casting of uh shake rattle and rock is pretty inspired. Uh, I, it, it, I I think I was emailing with you, Mike, about it, uh, and I mentioned that it kind of almost reminded me of an Alison Anders movie, or you know, one of her earlier movies, with the casting John Doe, Ruth Browns in this movie. So using musicians as actors is, is something she might do. So maybe it's like kind of a hybrid, in a way, of Alison Anders, Frank Tashlin, and, and John Waters or something. Um, but um, it had its moments.
3: I was really glad to see Garrett Graham show up. I mean, it's kind of funny. I was watching Brian De Palma films all weekend long. So at one point I was like, where did I see Garrett Graham in that wasn't a Brian De Palma film? (laughs) And then finally it dawned on me. I was like, oh yeah, he was Lipsky in the the Shake, Rattle, and Rock. I have to say though, John Doe, I don't know how old the guy is, but man, he looked way older than 21. I mean, that whole, like we're talking about Rock and Roll High School, we don't care how old these kids are. Doesn't really matter. They are in their 20s and 30s, and they're playing these high school kids, yada yada. But for some reason in Shake, Rattle, and Rock, it just really rubbed me the wrong way when I see Renee Zellweger, who looks one age, and then John Doe showing up as this 21-year-old. Just a little too much in this one. I don't know if you had anything to add about that, or if you wanted to talk about Paul Anka.
15: Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it was what? What an unexpected but a uh, cameo, Paul Anka. I don't think I've ever seen him in a movie before.
3: I've only seen him in the Lonely Boy, which was a documentary made about him years and years ago, which is hilarious to go back and watch now because Paul Anka, nineteen sixty-three, the guy was on top of the world. I mean, he was just, you know, girls weren't necessarily throwing their underwear at him, at least in this documentary, but they were just all over him, and he was just, you know, right there. And then you think about it like, oh, yeah, the Beatles are coming. Like, within three months or whenever this movie came out, he would be completely unseated by the Beatles, by the British invasion. And, yeah, Paul Anka was still relevant and a pop star and everything for a long time, but he was not going to be, the king of the world that he was but it is a great great documentary
15: well well, I fully expected him to come back in the movie and he never does reappear
3: you know I must have blinked and I missed him where was he in this
15: oh he comes in sort of early in the beginning when he's uh, delivering like or he's like uh, maybe running a restaurant or something nearby and he they're all out on the street and he's like kind of take away the, the some of the kids or something like that like, uh, he he, he tries to uh, he's definitely racist and
3: and narrow-minded. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Okay. All right, that she calls him like a Nazi pig or something. That's right. I totally did not peg him as Paulinka.
1: Such a good cameo. It's an anti-cameo.
3: The one cameo that really bothered me, though, was seeing fucking Ricky Rackman show up as Eddie Cochran. I don't know if you guys ever suffered through the Headbangers ball on MTV, but Ricky Rackman, I mean, you know, I mentioned Dave Kendall before. Ricky Rackman was the biggest piece of shit that was on MTV for at least a decade, and I just could not fucking stand that guy. Ouch. Sorry. We have our lines
1: in the sand. But what seemed to be a line in the sand for you, you were saying earlier, was uh, John Doe. Now I would like John Doe in here, but I got to agree with you. I think he, uh, I, I think he's a bit too old to play twenty-one.
3: I think actually it would have been better had they switched and had Mojo Nixon be the juvenile delinquent in this movie, and have John Doe be the spirit of rock and roll in Rock and Roll High School Forever, because man. Mojo definitely has uh, looks a little bit younger and it could just be the 3 years age difference between the two films but um I like Mojo Nixon but I just felt ashamed when he showed up in Rock and Roll High School forever. And I'm sorry that I'm still bashing that film but I just it, I it really it really bothered me man. It, I think I'm going to need to you know talk to my therapist about this. Please do. <laughs> I would rather ro- watch Rock and Roll Hotel any day of the week than watch rock and roll high school forever. One of the worst things is that it has the words rock and roll high school in the title. And then they go and they just piss all over this movie that I like. Oh, I just feel sad that uh, Mary Warnoff who, you know, uh, did participate in it. I think it's uh, like a poor image on her record.
1: I'd rather shove 18 inch sewing needles into my eyes than watch any of these again. Besides rock and roll high school,
3: <laughs> rock and roll high school. I could watch it again right now tomorrow the day after i yeah the more times i watch the movie the more i actually like it and i'm glad that you watch it so many times for the show adam and and kind of uh you know got with the program a little bit here
15: oh i totally did thank you for for you know with this uh, a bit. I, my connection of course was far still with ramones but i really feel like uh it's been uh terrific getting close to this to that film and I, and I feel like the main my main problem with with um rock and roll with i have to remember now the title with shake rattle and rock is is its lack of camp uh i i think again it's so tr- uh rock and roll high school has this you know, it's just sort of a sense of a lawn with the and the campiness and the jokes and the bits uh that that you know it's like rock sh- shake rattle shake rattle and rock am i getting that right yeah yep, it, just, yep. it sort of just lacks the sort of you know, it, you know, it's directed by uh, Alan Arkish, and it brings back actors like, you know, Mary Warnoff, PJ Soul and Dick Miller. Um, but it, it just lacks the campiness of, of, of that terrific film that we're, you know, uh, paying homage to today.
3: So let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show.
7: I'm taking you home with me.
5: Well, what are you waiting for? You want to piggyback, right? Don't get the wrong idea about me, Carly. We just met.
14: I don't have any ideas yet. We could do it,
6: Faye. I could take care of you real good. And suddenly I saw you two on the dance floor and it hit me like one of the kids' left hooks here that's what they used to call him kid collins you
7: don't really know anything about me no oh, but i know people i know what they'll do and i know what they won't <laughs> do but i don't want him talking you into this mess they're using you for their own criminal purposes
6: i'd say it'd be good if you never had to worry about money the rest of your life maybe i can get some kind of job
14: <laughs> don't hurt me mister
6: i don't know another guy in this country pulls a stunt like that and <laughs> gets away with it oh
14: And it's a damn good thing we weathered. You would have taken the wrong boy.
6: I told you, Faye, right from the beginning that I wasn't stupid. Family's ready to pay up. They just want the boy back.
8: Wake up, Collie.
3: Ah! Faye doesn't trust me, and I don't trust her. We
6: both don't trust you, but I can fix that part, you. We can end all this, right now.
14: You and me, together forever. I could take care of you real
1: good. Oh! You really believe there could be a you and me. That's right. We're back next week with a bit of a summer neo-noir with After Dark, my sweet episode to feature the first half of our two-part interview with director James Foley. But before we go, I want to thank all of our guests on this week's episode. Remember there are bonus interviews for a lot of the folks and you can go to our website, projection-booth.com to hear those. And I also want to thank our special guest co-host, Adam Shardoff. And Adam, for folks who may not know, tell us a little bit about what FilmWax Radio is all about, sir.
15: Uh, Well, I interview uh, people from all over the film world, primarily independent film art films. So it's an interview format, and uh, I bring on people. I've had on Brian De Palma, and uh,
3: we haven't even talked to Brian De Palma. Goddamn it!
15: I'll see what I can do. Thank you, guys. I, I, uh, I, uh, right, Mike, you hooked me up at one point because the two ain't blacktop.
3: Yeah, little Monty Hellman connection there.
15: Definitely. So I appreciate that. Uh, Yeah, I I just had on a whole. You know, I just have on uh, very obscure filmmakers from the independent film world more often than not.
3: Well, obscure filmmakers that hopefully won't be that obscure any longer.
15: No, no, they're wonderful. Everybody's wonderful, and I also have like people from district, uh, the industry side, and uh, pretty much the game. Anybody with a stake in the game, and uh, you can find you can go to FilmWaxRadio.com dot com and get a uh, you know all all things FilmWax. You can find all things FilmWax there.
3: So what are some of your upcoming episodes you have?
15: Well, actually, I do have uh, Andrew Pajowski and Kevin Corrigan coming up. Cross your fingers! I'm supposed to be talking with Jason Schwartzman also. So not everybody is quite so obscure.
3: Cool. Well, hey, thanks again, Anna, for coming on the show. And thanks for everybody for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, go on over to iTunes, leave us a review, give us some stars, share the episode on your social media, write about us on your Trapper Keeper, tattoo us on your arm, whatever it takes to kind of get the word out but now gentlemen class dismissed <sighs> big
15: time, girly. This is rock and roll.
14: Yeah, well, this. Rock and roll high school.
2: Rock and roll high school?
14: Yeah, I wrote it for Mr. McGree's music class,
6: but I really wrote it for you, Joey.
2: Hey, pizza. Great. Let's dig in. Yeah, I want some. Oh, thanks. How many times do I have to tell you?
6: No pizza for you, Joey. More wheat germ and riboflavin. Yeah, come on, Joey. Eat good. See, I'm going to eat some myself. Mmm. Mmm, organic alfalfa sprouts, hey. come on Joey. Hey. Good, mmm. Come on, eat Joey, good boy. Yeah, mama, I'll love you. You like it, huh? Huh? Good, yeah. Hey. Iron, niacin, B12, flows in the
3: earth. And thank you for listening. Christopher
15: Media. Let's make some noise.